This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Sowers of the Thunder by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Connor K. It runs one hour, 34 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Sowers of the Thunder by Robert E. Howard First published in Oriental Tales, Winter, 1932 Iron winds and ruin and flame, and a horseman shaking with giant mirth, over a corpse-strewn blackened earth, death stalking naked came, like a storm cloud shattering the ships, yet the rider seated high paled at the smile on a dead king's lips as the tall white horse went by. The Ballad of Baibars Chapter 1 The idlers in the tavern glanced up at the figure framed in the doorway. It was a tall, broad man who stood there, with the torch-lit shadows and clamour of the bazaars at his back. His garments were a simple tunic and short breeches of leather. A camel's hair mantle hung from his broad shoulders, and sandals were on his feet. But belying the garb of a peaceful traveller, a short, straight, stabbing sword hung at his girdle. One massive arm ridged with muscles, was outstretched. The brawny hand gripped a pilgrim's staff as the man stood, powerful legs wide-braced in the doorway. His bare legs were hairy, knotted like tree trunks. His coarse red locks were confined by a single band of blue cloth, and from his square, dark face, his strange blue eyes blazed with a kind of reckless and wayward mirth, reflected by the half-smile that curved his thin lips. His glances passed over the hawk-faced seafarers and ragged loungers who brewed tea and squabbled endlessly to rest on a man who sat apart at a rough-hewn table with a wine pitcher. Such a man the watcher in the door had never seen, tall, deep-chested, broad-shouldered, built with the dangerous suppleness of a panther. His eyes were as cold as blue ice, set off by a mane of golden hair tinted with red. So to the man in the doorway, that hair seemed like burning gold. The man at the table wore a light shirt of silvered mail, a long lean sword hung at his hip, and on the bench beside him lay a kite-shaped shield and a light helmet. The man in the guise of a traveller strode purposely forward and halted, hands resting on the table across which he smiled mockingly at the other and spoke in a tongue strange to the seated man, newly come to the east. This one turned to an idler and asked in Norman French, What does the infidel say? I said, replied the traveller in the same tongue, that a man cannot even enter an Egyptian inn these days without finding some dog of a Christian under his feet. As the traveller had spoken, the other had risen, and now the speaker dropped his hand to his sword. Scintillant lights flickered in the other's eyes, and he moved like a flash of summer lightning. His left hand darted out to lock in the breast of the traveller's tunic, and in his right hand the long sword flashed out. The traveller was caught, flat-footed, his sword half clear of his sheath, 
but the faint smile did not leave his lips, and he stared almost childishly at the blade that flickered before his eyes, as if fascinated by its dazzling. Heathen dog, snarled the swordsman, and his voice was like the slash of a blade through fabric. I'll send you to hell unshriven. What panther whelped you that you move as a cat strikes, responded the other curiously, as calmly as if his life were not weighing in the balance. But you took me by surprise. I did not know that a Frank dared draw a sword in Damietta. The Frank glared at him moodily. The wine he had drunk showed in the dangerous gleams that played in his eyes, where lights and shadow continuously danced and shifted. Who are you? he demanded. Harun the Traveller, the other grinned. Put up your steel. I crave pardon for my jibing words. It seems there are Franks of the old breed yet. With a change of mood, the Frank thrust his sword back into its sheath with an impatient clash. Turning to his bench, he indicated the table and wine pitcher with a sweeping gesture. Sit and refresh yourself. If you are a traveller, you have a tale to tell. Harun did not at once comply. His gaze swept the inn and he beckoned the innkeeper, who came grudgingly forward. As he approached the traveller, the innkeeper suddenly shrank back with a low, half-stifled cry. Harun's eyes went suddenly merciless, and he said, What then, host? Do you see in me a man you have known aforetime, perchance? His voice was like the purr of a hunting tiger, and the wretched innkeeper shivered as with an ague, his dilated eyes fixed on the broad-corded hand that stroked the hilt of the stabbing sword. No, no, master, he mouthed. By Allah, I know you not. I never saw you before. And by Allah, grant I never see you again, he added mentally. Then tell me, what does this Frank here in mail and wearing a sword, ordered Harun brusquely, in Turkey? The dog Venetians are allowed to trade in Damietta as in Alexandria, but they pay for the privilege in humility and insult, and none dares gird on a blade here, much less lift it against a believer. He is no Venetian, good Harun, answered the innkeeper. Yesterday he came ashore from a Venetian trading galley, but he consorts not with the traders or the crew of the infidels. He strides boldly through the streets, wearing steel openly and ruffling against all who would cross him. He says he is going to Jerusalem and could not find a ship bound for any port in Palestine, so came here, intending to travel the rest of the way by land. The believers have said he is mad, and none molests him. Truly, the mad are touched by Allah and given his protection mused Harun. Yet this man is not altogether mad, I think. Bring wine, dog. The innkeeper ducked in a deep salam and hastened off to do the traveller's bidding. The prophet's command against strong drink was among other orthodox precepts disobeyed in Damietta, where many nations foregathered and Turk rubbed shoulders with Copt, Arab and Sudani. Harun seated himself opposite the Frank and took the wine goblet proffered by a servant. You sit in the midst of your enemies like a shah of the east, my lord. He grinned. By Allah, you have the bearing of a king. I am a king, infidel, growled the other. The wine he had drunk had touched him with a reckless and mocking madness. And where lies your kingdom, Malik? The question was not asked in mockery. Harun had seen many broken kings drifting among the debris that floated eastward. On the dark side of the moon answered the Frank with a wild and bitter laugh. Among the ruins of all the unborn or forgotten empires which etch the twilight of a lost age, Cahal Ruud O'Donnell, King of Ireland, 
The name means naught to you, Harun of the East, and naught to the land which was my birthright. They who were my foes sit in the high seats of power. They who were my vassals lie cold and still. The bats haunt my shattered castles, and already the name of Red Kahal is dim on the memories of men. So, fill up my goblet, slave. You have the soul of a warrior, Malik. Was it treachery overcame you? I, treachery, swore Kahal. And the wiles of a woman who coiled about my soul until I was as one blind, to be cast out at the end like a broken pawn. I, the Lady Eleanor de Courcy, with her black hair like midnight shadows on Loch Derg, and the grey eyes of her like... He started suddenly, like a man waking from a trance, and his wayward eyes blazed. Saints and devils, he roared, who are you that I should spill out my soul to? The wine has betrayed me and loosened my tongue. But I, he reached for his sword, but Harun laughed. I've done you no harm, Malik. Turn this murderous spirit of yours into another channel. By Elik, I'll give you a test to cool your blood. Rising, he caught up a javelin laying beside a drunken soldier, and striding around the table, his eyes recklessly alight, he extended his massive arm, gripping the shaft close to the middle, pointing upward. Grip the shaft, Malik, he laughed. In all my days, I have met no one who was man enough to twist a stave out of my hand. Kahal rose and gripped the shaft so that his clenched fingers almost touched those of Harun. Then, legs braced wide, arms bent at the elbow, each man exerted his full strength against the other. They were well matched. Kahal was a trifle taller, Harun thicker of body. It was bear opposed to tiger. Like two statues, they stood straining, neither yielding an inch the javelin almost motionless under the equal forces. Then, with a sudden rending snap, the tough wood gave way and each man staggered, holding half the shaft, which had parted under terrific strain. Aye, shouted Harun, his eyes sparkling. Then they dulled with sudden doubt. By Allah, Malik, he said, this is an ill thing. Of two men, one should be the master of the other, lest both come to a bad end. Yet this signifies that neither of us will ever yield to the other, and in the end, each will work the other ill. Sit down and drink, answered the gale, tossing aside the broken shaft and reaching for the wine goblet. His dreams of lost grandeur and his anger, both apparently lost. I have not been long in the east, but I knew not there were such as you among the Paynim. Surely you are not one with the Egyptians, Arabs and Turks I have seen. I was born far to the east, among the tents of the Golden Horde, in the steppes of High Asia, answered Harun, his mood changing back to joviality as he flung himself down on his bench. Ha! I was almost a man grown before I had heard of Muhammad, on whom peace? Hi, Bogatir. I have been many things. Once I was a princeling of the Tatars, son of the Lord Subutai, who was right hand to Kengis Khan. Once I was a slave when the Turkomans drove a raid east and carried off youths and girls from the horde. In the slave market of El Kahira, I was sold for three pieces of silver, by Allah, and my master gave me to the Bahaidras, the slave soldiers, because he feared I'd strangle him. Ha! Now I am Harun the Traveller, making pilgrimage to the holy place. But once, only a few days agone, I was man to buy bars, whom the devil fly away with. Men say in the streets that this Baibars is the real ruler of Cairo, said Kahal curiously. New to the east though he was, he had heard the name oft repeated. Men lie, responded Harun. 
the Sultan rules Egypt, and Shadyar ad-Dar rules the Sultan. Baibars is only the general of the Bahiras, the great Oaf. I was his man, he shouted suddenly with a great laugh. To come and go at his bidding, to put him to bed, to rise with him, to sit down at meat with him, I, and to put food and drink into his fool's mouth, but I have escaped him, by Allah, by Allah, and by Allah. I have naught to do with this great fool Baibars tonight. I am a free man, and the devil may fly away with him, and with his sultan, and Shadyar ad-Dar, and all Saladin's empire, I am my own man tonight. He pulsed with an energy that would not let him be still or silent. He seemed vibrant and joyously mad with the sheer exuberance of life and the great mirth of living. With gargantuan laughter, he smote the table thunderously with his open hand and roared, By Allah, Malik, you shall help me celebrate my escape from that great oaf by bars, whom the devil fly away with. Away with this slop dogs, bring Kumis. The Nazarene lord and I intend to hold such a drinking bout as Damietta's inns have not seen in a hundred years. But my master has already emptied a full wine pitcher and is more than half drunk, clamoured the nondescript servant Kahal had picked up on the wharves. Not that he cared, but whomever he served, he wished to have the best of any contest, and besides, it was his oriental instinct to intrude his say. So, roared Harun, catching up a full wine pitcher. I will not take advantage of any man. See, I quaff this thimbleful that we may start on even terms. And drinking deeply, he flung down the empty pitcher. The servants of the inn brought cumis, fermented mare's milk, in leathern skins bound and sealed, illegal drink brought down by the caravans from the lands of the Turkomans to tempt the sated palates of nobles and to satisfy the craving of the stepsmen among the mercenaries and the Bahiris. Then, goblet for goblet with Harun, Kahal coughed the unfamiliar whitish acid stuff, and never had the exiled Irish prince seen such a cup companion as this wanderer. For between enormous draughts, Harun shook the smoke-stained rafters with giant laughter, and shouted over spicy tales that breathed the very sense of Cairo's merry obscenity and high comedy. He sang Arab love songs that sighed with the whisper of palm leaves and the swish of silken veils, and he roared riding songs in a tongue none in the tavern could understand, but which vibrated with the drum of Mongol hooves and the clashing of swords. The moon had set, and even the clamour of Damietta had ebbed in the darkness before dawn, when Harun staggered up and clutched reeling at the table for support. A single weary slave stood by to pour wine. Keeper, servants, and guests snored on the floor or had slipped away before long. Harun shouted a thick-tongued war cry and yelled aloud with the sheer riotousness of his mirth. Sweat stood in beads on his face and the veins of his temples swelled and throbbed from his excesses. His wild wayward eyes danced with joyous deviltry. Would you were not a king, Malik, he roared, catching up a stout bludgeon. I would show you cudgel play. I, my blood is racing like a Turkoman stallion, and in good sport I would fain deal strong blows on somebody's pate, by Allah. Then grip your stick, Malik, answered Kahal, reeling up. Men call me fool, but no man has ever said I was backward where blows were going, be they of steel or wood. Upsetting the table, he gripped a leg and wrenched powerfully. There was a splintering of wood, and the rough leg came away in his iron hands. Here is my cudgel, wanderer 
roared the gale. Let the breaking of heads begin, and if the prophet loves you, he'd best fling his mantle over your skull. Salam to you, Malik, roared Harun. No other king since Malik Rick would take up cudgels with a masterless wanderer, and with giant laughter he lunged. The fight was necessarily short and fierce. The wine they had drunk had made eye and hand uncertain and their feet unsteady, but it had not robbed them of their tigerish strength. Harun struck first as a bear strikes, and it was by luck rather than skill that Kahal partly parried the whistling blow. Even so, it fell glancingly above his ear, filling his vision with a myriad sparks of light and knocking him back against the upset table. Kahal gripped the table leg with his left hand for support and struck back so savagely and swiftly that Harun could neither duck nor parry. Blood splattered, the cudgel splitting in Kahal's hand and the traveller dropped like a log to lie motionless. Kahal flung aside his cudgel with a motion of disgust and shook his head violently to clear it. Neither of us would yield to the other, hmm? Well, in this I have prevailed. He stopped. Harun lay sprawled serenely, and a sound of placid snoring rose on the air. Kahal's blow had lain open his scalp and felt him, but it was the incredible amount of liquor the Tartar had drunk that had caused him to lie where he had fallen. And now Kahal knew that if he did not get out into the cool night air at once, he too would fall senseless beside Harun. Cursing himself disgustedly, he kicked his servant awake and gathered up shield, helmet, and cloak, staggering out of the inn. Great white clusters of stars hung over the flat roofs of Damietta, reflected in the black lapping waves of the river. Dogs and beggars slept in the dust of the street, and in the black shadows of crooked alleys, not even a thief stole. Kahal swung into the saddle of the horse the sleepy servant brought, and reined his way through the winding silent streets. A cold wind, forerunner of dawn, cleared away the fumes of the wine as he rode out of the tangle of alleys and bazaars. Dawn was not yet whitening the east, but the tang of dawn was in the air. Past the flat-topped mud huts, among the irrigation ditches he rode, past the wells with their long wooden sweeps and deep clumps of palms, behind him the ancient city slumbered, shadowy, mysterious, alluring, before him stretched the sands of the Jafar. Chapter 2 The Bedouins did not cut Red Gahal's throat on the road from Damietta to Ascalon. He was preserved for a different destiny, and so he rode, careless, and alone except for his ragamuffin servant, across the wastelands, and no barbed arrow or curved blade touched him, though a band of hawk-like raiders in floating white carlets harried him the last part of the way, and followed him like a wolf pack to the very gates of the Christian outposts. It was a restless and unquiet land through which Red Cahal rode on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the warm spring days of that year, 1243. The red-haired prince learned much that was new to him of the land which had been but a vague haze of disconnected names and events in his mind when he started on his exiled pilgrimage. He had known that the Emperor Frederick II had regained Jerusalem from the infidels without fighting a battle, but now he learned that the holy city was shared with the Muslims, to whom it likewise was holy. Al-Quds, the holy, they called it, for from thence, they said, Muhammad ascended to paradise, and there on the last day would he sit in judgment on the souls of men. And Kahal learned that the kingdom of Utramer 
was but a shadow of an heroic past. In the north, Bahamund VI held Antioch and Tripoli. In the south, Christendom held the coast as far as Ascalon, with some inland towns such as Hebron, Bethlehem, and Ramlah. The grim castles of the Templars and of the Knights of St. John loomed like watchdogs above the land, and the fierce soldier monks wore arms day and night, ready to ride to any part of the kingdom threatened by pagan invasion. But how long could that thin line of ramparts and men along the coast stand against the growing pressure of the heathen hinterlands? In the talk of castle and tavern, as he rode towards Jerusalem, Cahal heard the name of Baibars. Men said the Sultan of Egypt, kin of the great Saladin, was in his dotage, ruled by the slave girl Shadyar Adar, and that sharing her rule were the war chiefs, Beg, the Kurd, and Baibars, the panther. This Baibars was a devil in human form, men said, a guzzler of wine and a lover of women, yet his wits were as keen as a monk's, and his prowess in battle was the subject of many songs among the Arab minstrels. A strong man and ambitious. He was the generalissimo of the mercenaries, men said, who were the real strength of the Egyptian army, Bahiras, some called them, others the white slaves of the river, the Melmuks. This host was, in the main, comprised of Turkish slaves, raised up in its ranks and trained only in the arts of war. Baibars himself had served as a common soldier in the ranks, rising to power by the sheer might of his arm. He could eat a roasted sheep at one meal, the Arab wanderer said, and though wine was forbidden the faithful, it was well known that he had drunk all his officers under the table. He had been known to break a man's spine in his bare hands in a moment of rage, and when he rode into battle swinging his heavy scimitar, none could stand before him. And if this incarnate devil came up out of the south with his cutthroats, how could the lords of Outremer stand against him without the aid that war-torn and intrigue-wracked Europe had ceased to send. Spies slipped among the Franks, learning their weaknesses, and it was said that Baibars himself had gained entrance into Bohemond's palace in the guise of a wandering teller of tales. He must be in league with the evil one himself, this Egyptian chief. He loved to go among his people in disguise, it was said, and he ruthlessly slew any man who recognized him. A strange soul, full of wayward whims, yet ferocious as a tiger. Yet it was not so much Baibars of whom the people talked, nor yet of Sultan Ismail, the Muslim lord of Damascus. There was a threat in the blue mysterious east which overshadowed both these nearer foes. Cahal heard of a strange, new, terrible people, like a scourge out of the east, Mongols or Tartars, as the priests called them, swearing they were the veritable demons of Tartary, spoken of by the prophets of old. More than a score of years before, they had burst like a sandstorm out of the east, trampling all in their path. Islam had crumbled before them, and kings had been dashed into dust. And as their chief, men named one Subotai, whom Harun the Traveller, Kahal remembered, had claimed as sire. Then the horde had turned its course, and the Holy Land had been spared. The Mongols had drifted back into the limbo of the unknown east, with their oxtail standards their lacquered armour, their kettle drums, and their terrible bows, and men had almost forgotten them. But now, of late years, the vultures had circled again in the east, and from time to time, news had trickled down through the hills of the Kurds, of the Turkoman clans flying in the shattered rout before the yak-tailed banners. Suppose the unconquerable horde should turn southward. 
Subutai had spared Palestine, but who knew the mind of Mangu Khan, whom the Arab wanderers named the present lord of the nomads? So the people talked in the dreamy spring weather as Kahal rode to Jerusalem, seeking to forget the past, losing himself in the present, absorbing the spirit and traditions of the country and the people, picking up new languages with the characteristic facility of the gale. He journeyed to Hebron, and in the great cathedral of the Virgin at Bethlehem, knelt beside the crypt where candles burned to mark the birthplace of our fair Signor Christ. And he rode up to Jerusalem with its ruined walls and its mullahs calling the Muezzin within earshot of the priests chanting beside the sepulchre. Those walls had been destroyed by the sultans of Damascus years before. Beyond the Via Dolorosa, he saw the slender columns of the al Aqsa portals, and was told Christian hands first shaped them. He was shown mosques that had once been Christian chapels, and was told that the gilded dome above the mosque of Omar covered a grey rock which was the Mohammedan Holy of Holies, the rock whence the prophet ascended to paradise. I, and thereon in the days of Israel had Abraham stood, and the Ark of the Covenant had rested and the temple whence Christ drove the merchants, for the rock was the pinnacle of Mount Moriah, one of the two mountains on which Jerusalem was built. But now the Muslim dome of the rock hid it from Christian view, and the dervishes with naked swords stood night and day to bar the way of unbelievers. Though nominally, the city was in Christian hands, and Cahal realized how weak the Franks of Outremer had grown. He rode in the hills above the holy city and stood on the Mount of Olives where Tancred had stood nearly 150 years before for his first sight of Jerusalem. And he dreamed deep, dim dreams of those old days when men first rode from the west, strong with faith and eager with zeal, to found a kingdom of God. Now men cut their neighbors' throats in the west and cried out beneath the heels of ambitious kings and greedy popes and in their wars and crying out, forgot that thin frontier where the remnants of a fading glory clung to their slender boundaries. Through budding spring, hot summer, and dreamy autumn, Red Cahal rode, following a blind pilgrimage that led even beyond Jerusalem, and whose goal he could not see or guess. Ascalon he tarried in, Tyre, Jaffa, and Acre. He was visitor at the castles of the military orders. Walter de Brienne offered him a part in the rule of the fading kingdom, but Gahal shook his head and rode on. The throne he had never pressed had been snatched beyond his reach, and no other earthly glory would suffice. And so, in the budding dream of a new spring, he came to the castle of Renault de Iblen beyond the frontier. Chapter 3 The Sieur Renault was a cousin of the powerful crusading family of the de Iblen, which held its grim grey castle on the coast. But little of the fruits of conquest had fallen to him. A wanderer and adventurer, living by his wits and the edge of his sword, he had gotten more hard blows than gold. He was a tall, lean man with hawk eyes and a predatory nose. His mail was worn, his velvet cloak shabby and torn, and the gems long gone from the hilt of sword and dagger and the knight's hold was a haunt of poverty. The dry moat which encircled the castle was filled up in many places. The outer walls were mere heaps of crumbled stone. Weeds grew rank in the courtyard and over the filled-up well. The chambers of the castle were dusty and bare, and the great desert spiders spun their webs on cold stones. 
lizards scampered across the broken flags, and the tramp of mailed feet resounded eerily in the echoing emptiness. No merry villages bearing grain and wine thronged the barren courts, and no gaily clad pages sang among the dusty corridors. For over half a century the keep had stood deserted, until de Iblin had ridden across the Jordan to make it a reader's hold. For the Sieur Renault, in the stress of poverty, had become no more than a bandit chief, raiding the caravans of the Muslims. And now, in the dim dusty tower of the crumbling hold, the knight in his shabby finery sat at wine with his guest. The tale of your betrayal is not entirely unknown to me, good sir, said Renault, unbidden, for since that night of drunkenness in Damietta, Cahal had not spoken of his past. Some word of affairs in Ireland has drifted to this isolated land. As one ruined adventurer to another, I bid you welcome, but I would like to hear the tale from your own lips. Gahal laughed mirthlessly and drank deeply. A tale soon told and best forgotten. I was a wanderer, living by my sword, robbed of my heritage before birth. The English lords pretended to sympathise with my claims to the Irish throne. If I would aid them against the O'Neills, they would throw off their allegiance to Henry of England, would serve me as my barons. So swore Sir William Fitzgerald and his peers. I am not an utter fool. They had not persuaded me so easily, but for the lady Eleanor de Courcy, with her black hair and proud Norman eyes, who feigned love for me. Hell! Why draw out the tale? I fought for them, won wars for them. They tricked me and cast me aside. I went into battle for the throne with less than a thousand men. Their bones rot in the hills of Donegal, and better I had died out there, but my kerns bore me senseless from the field, and then my own clan cast me forth. I took the cross after I cut the throat of William Fitzgerald among his own henchmen. Speak of it no more, my kingdom was clouds and moon mist. I seek forgetfulness of a lost ambition and of the ghost of a dead love. Stay here and raid the caravans with me, suggested Renault. Cahal shrugged his shoulders. It would not last, I fear. But with forty-five men-at-arms, you cannot hold this pile of ruins long. I have seen that old well is long choked and broken in, and the reservoirs shattered. In case of a siege, you would have only the tanks you have built, filled with water you carry from the muddy spring outside the walls. They would last only a few days at most. Poverty drives men to desperate deeds, frankly admitted Renault. Godfrey, the first lord of Jerusalem, built this castle for an outpost in the days when his rule extended beyond Jordan. Saladin stormed and partly dismantled it, and since then it has housed only the bat and the jackal. I made it my lair, from whence I raid the caravans which go down to Mecca, but the plunder has been scanty enough. My neighbour, the Sheikh Suleiman ibn Omad, will inevitably wipe me out if I bide here long, though I have skirmished successfully with his riders and beat off a flying raid. He has sworn to hang my head on his tower, driven to madness by my raids on the Mecca pilgrims, whom it is his obligation to protect. Well, I have another thing in mind. Look, I scratch a map on the table with my dagger point. Here is the castle. Here in the north is El Omad, the stronghold of the Sheikh Salaman. Now look, far to the east I trace a wandering line. So, that is the great river Euphrates, which begins in the hills of Asia Minor and traverses the whole plain, joining at last with the Tigris and flowing into Bar El Fars, the Persian Gulf below Bessora. Thus, I trace the Tigris. Now where I make this mark beside the river Tigris stands Mosul of the Persians. Beyond Mosul lies an unknown land of deserts and mountains, but among these mountains there is a city called Shehazar, 
the treasure trove of the sultans. There the lords of their east send their gold and jewels for safekeeping, and the city is ruled by a cult of warriors sworn to guard the treasures. The gates are kept bolted night and day, and no caravans pass out of this city. It is a secret place of wealth and pleasure, and the Muslims seek to keep word of it from Christian ears. Now it is in my mind to desert this ruin and ride east in quest of that city. Kahal smiled in admiration of the splendid madness, but shook his head. If it is as well guarded as you say now, how could a handful of men hope to take it, even if they win through the hostile country which lies between? Because a handful of Franks has taken it, retorted to Iblin. Nearly half a century ago, the adventurer Cormac Fitzgeoffrey raided Shahazar among the mountains and bore away untold plunder. What he did, another can do. Of course, it is madness. The chances are all that the Kurds will cut our throats before we ever see the banks of the Euphrates. But we will rise swiftly, and then the Muslims may be so engaged with the Mongols, a small, hard-riding band might slip through. We will ride ahead of the news of our coming and smite Shahazar as a whirlwind smites. Lord Kahal, shall we sit supine until Baibars comes up out of Egypt and cuts all our throats? Or shall we cast the dice of chance to loot the eagle's iery under the nose of Muslim and Mongol alike? Kahal's cold eyes gleamed and he laughed aloud as the lurking madness in his soul responded to the madness of the proposal. His hard hand smote against the brown palm of Renault de Iblin. Doom hovers over all Outremer, and doom is no grimmer met on a mad quest than in the locked spears of battle. East we ride to the devil knows what doom. The sun had scarce set when Gahal's ragged servant, who had followed him faithfully through all his previous wanderings, stole away from the ruined walls and rode towards Jordan, flogging his shaggy pony hard. The madness of his master was no affair of his, and life was sweet, even to a Cairo gutter waif. The first stars were blinking when Renault de Iblin and Red Cajal rode down the slope at the head of the men-at-arms. A hard-bitten lot were these, lean, taciturn fighters, born in Outremer for the most part, a few veterans of Normandy and the Rhineland who had followed wandering lords into the Holy Land and had remained. They were well-armed, clad in chainmail shirts and steel caps, bearing kite-shaped shields. They rode fleet Arab horses and tall Turkoman steeds, and led horses followed. It was the capture of a number of fine steeds which had crystallized the idea of the raid in Reynolds' mind. The Iblin had long learned the lesson of the East. Swift marches that went ahead of the news of the raid and depended on the quality of the mounts. Yet he knew the whole plan was madness. Cahal and Renault rode to the unknown land, and far in the east, the vultures circled endlessly. Chapter 4 The bearded watcher on the tower above the gates of El Omad shaded his hawk eyes. In the east, a dust cloud grew, and out of the cloud a black dot came flying and the lean Arab knew it was a lone horseman, riding hard. He shouted a warning, and in an instant, other lean, hawk-eyed figures were at his side. Brown fingers toying with bowstrings and cane-shafted spear. They watched the approaching figure with the intentness of men born to feud and raid. A frank, grunted one, and on a dying horse. They watched tensely as the lone rider dipped out of sight in a dry wadi, came into view again on the near side, clattered reelingly across the dust level and drew rain beneath the gate. A lean hand drew shaft to ear, but a word from the first watcher halted the archer. The Frank had half climbed, half fallen from his reeling horse, 
and now he staggered to the gate and smoked against it resoundingly with his mailed fist. By Allah, and by Allah, swore the bearded watcher in wonder, the Nazarene is mad. He leaned over the battlement and shouted, O dead man, what wouldst thou at the gate of El Omad? The Frank looked up with eyes glazed from thirst and the burning winds of the desert. His mail was white with drifting dust, which likewise his lips were parched and caked. He spoke with difficulty. Open the gates, dog, lest ill befall you. It is Kazil Malik, the Red King, whom men call the Mad, whispered an archer. He rode with the Lord Renault, the shepherds say. Hold him in play while I fetch the sheikh. Art thou weary of life, Nazarene, called the first speaker, that thou comest to the gate of thine enemy? Fetch the lord of the castle, dog, roared the gale. I parlay not with menials, and my horse is dying. The tall, lean form of Sheikh Suleiman ibn Omad loomed amongst the guardsmen, and the old chief swore in his beard, By Allah, this is a trap of some sort. Nazarene, what do ye here? Gahal licked his blackened lips with a dry tongue. When the wild dogs run, panther and buffalo flee together, he said. Doom rushes from the east on Muslim and Christian alike. I bring you warning. Call in your vassals and make fast your gates, lest another rising sun find you sleeping amongst the charred embers of your hold. I claim the courtesy due a perishing traveller, and my horse is dying. It is no trap, growled the sheikh in his beard. The Frank has a tale. There has been a harrying in the east, and perchance the Mongols are upon us. Open the gates, dogs, and let him in. Through the open gates, Cahal unsteadily led his drooping steed, and his first words gained him esteem among the Arabs. See to my horse! And willing hands complied. Cahal stumbled to a horse block and sank down, his head in his hands. A slave gave him a flagon of water, and he drank avidly. As he set down the flagon, he was aware that the sheikh had come from the tower and stood before him. Suleiman's keen eyes ran over the gale from head to foot noting the lines of weariness in his face. The dust that caked his mail, the fresh dints on helmet and shield, black dried blood was caked thick about the mouth of his scabbard, showing he had sheathed his sword without pausing to cleanse it. You have fought hard and fled swiftly, concluded Suleiman aloud. Aye, by the saints, laughed the prince. I have fled for a night and a day and a night without rest. This horse is the third which has fallen under me. Whom do you flee? A horde that must have ridden up from the dim limbo of hell, wild riders with tall fur caps and the heads of wolves as their standards. Allah, il Allah, swore Suleiman. Karezmians, flying before the Mongols. They were apparently fleeing some greater horde, answered Cahal. Let me tell the tale swiftly. The Sieur Renault and I rode east with all his men, seeking the fabled city of Shahazar. So that was the quest, interrupted Suleiman. Well, I was preparing to sweep down and stamp out that robber's nest, when divers herdsmen brought me word that the bandits had ridden away swiftly in the night, like the thieves they were. I could have ridden after, but knew that Christians riding eastward but rode to their doom, and none can alter the will of Allah. Aye, grinned Cahal wolfishly, east to our doom we rode, like men riding blind into the teeth of a storm. We slashed our way through the lands of the Kurds and across the Euphrates. Beyond, far to the east, we saw smoke and flame and the wheeling of many vultures. And Renault said the Turkomans fought the horde, but we met no fugitives, and I wondered then. I wonder not now.
The slayers rode over them like a wave out of the night, and none was left to flee. Like men riding to death in a dream, we rode into the onrushing storm, and the suddenness of it coming was like a thunderbolt. A sudden drum of hoofs over a ridge, and they were upon us, hundreds of them, a swarm of outriders scouting ahead of the horde. There was no chance to flee, our men died where they stood. And the Sieur Renault? asked the Sheikh. Dead, said Cahal. I saw a curved blade cleave his helmet and his skull. Allah be merciful and save his soul from the hellfire of the unbelievers, piously claimed Suleiman, who had sworn to kill the luckless adventurer on sight. He took toll before he fell, grimly answered the gale. By God, the heathen lay like ripe grain beneath our horse's hooves before the last man fell. I alone hacked my way through. The sheikh, grown old in warfare, visualized the scene that lay behind that simple sentence. The swarming, howling, fur-clad horsemen with their barbaric war cries, and Red Cahal riding like a wind of death through that maelstrom of flashing blades, his sword singing in his hand as horse and rider went down before him. I outstripped the pursuers, said Cahal, and as I rode over a hill I looked back and saw the great black mass of the horde swarming like locusts over the land filling the skies with the clamour of their kettle drums. The Turkomans had risen behind us as we raced through their lands, and now the desert was alive with horsemen, but the whole east was aflame, and the tribesmen had no time to hunt down a single rider. They were faced with a stronger foe, so I won through. My horse fell under me, but I stole a steed from a herd watched by a Turkoman boy. When it could do no more, I took a mount from a wandering Kurd who rode up, thinking to loot a dying traveller. And now I say to you, whom men dub the Watcher of the Trail, beware, lest these demons from the east ride over your ruins as they have ridden over the corpses of the Turkomans. I do not think they will lay siege. They are like wolves ranging the steps. They strike and pass on. But they ride like the wind. They have crossed the Euphrates. Behind me last night the sky was red as blood. Hard as I have ridden, they must be close on my heels. Let them come, grimly answered the Arab. El Omar's held out against Nazarene, Kurd, and Turk. For a hundred years, no foe has set foot within these walls. Malik, this is a time when Christian and Muslim should join hands. I thank you for your warning and beg you to aid me in holding the walls. But Kahal shook his head. You will not need my help. I have other work to do. It was not to save my worthless life that I have ridden three noble steeds to death. Otherwise, I had left my body beside Renault de Iblin. I must ride on. Jerusalem is in the path of these devils, and with its ruined walls and scanty guard. Suleiman paled and plucked his beard. Al-Quds! These pagan dogs will slay Christian and Mohammedan alike, and desecrate the holy places. And so, Cahal rose swiftly, I must on to warn them. So swiftly have these Khoresmians come, that no word of their coming will have gone on to Palestine. On me alone the burden of warning lies. Give me a fleet horse, and let me go. You can do no more, objected Suleiman. You are foredone, an hour more, and you would drop senseless from the saddle. I will send one of my men instead. Cahal shook his head. The duty is mine, yet I will sleep an hour. One small hour can make no difference, and then I will fare on. Come to my couch, urged Suleiman, but the hardy gale shook his head. This has been my couch before, said he, and flinging himself down on the scanty grass of the courtyard, he drew his cloak about him and fell into the deep sleep of utter exhaustion. Yet he slept but an hour when he awoke of his own accord. Food and wine were placed before him, and he drank and ate ravenously. 
His features were still drawn and haggard, but in his short rest he had drawn upon hidden springs of endurance. An iron man in an age of iron. He added to his physical ruggedness a dynamic nerve energy that carried him beyond himself and upheld him after more stolid men had dropped by the wayside. As he reined out of the gates on a swift Arab steed, the watchman shouted and pointed to the east, where a pillar of smoke billowed up against the hot blue sky. The sheikh flung up his arm in salute as Gahal rode towards Jerusalem at a swinging gallop that ate up the miles. Bedouins in their black felt tents gaped at him. Herdsmen leaning on their stave stiffened at his shout. A rising drum of hoofs, the wave of a mailed arm, a shattered warning, then the dwindling hoofbeats. Behind him, the frenzied people snatched up their belongings and fled shrieking to places of shelter or hiding. Chapter 5 The moon was setting as Gahal splashed through the calm waters of the Jordan, flecked with the mirrored stars. The sun was rising when his horse fell at the gate of Jerusalem that opens on the Damascus Road. Gahal staggered up, half dead himself, and gazing on the crumbling ruins of the shattered walls, he groaned aloud. On foot he hurried forward and a group of placid Syrians watched him curiously. A bearded Flemish man-at-arms came forward, trailing his pike. Cahal snatched a wine flask that hung at the soldier's girdle and emptied it in one draught. Lead me to the patriarch, he grasped throatily. Doom rides on swift hoofs to Jerusalem. Ha! From the people, a thin cry of wonder and fear had gone up. Cahal wheeled and felt fear constrict his throat. Again in the east, he saw flying flame and drifting smoke the gigantic tracks of the destroying horde. They have crossed the Jordan, he cried. Saints of God, when did men born of women ride so madly? They spurned the very wind. Cursed be the weakness that made me waste even a single hour. The words died in his throat as he looked at the ruined walls. Truly, an hour more or less could have no significance to that doomed city. Cahal rode through the streets with the soldier, and he saw that already the word had spread like wildfire. Jews, in their blue shubas, ran about howling. In the streets and on the housetops, women wrung their white hands and wailed. Tall Syrians bound their belongings on donkeys and formed the nucleus of a disorderly horde that streamed out of the western gates, staggering under bundles of household goods. The city crouched trembling and dazed with terror under the threat rising in the east. What horde was sweeping upon them, they did not know, nor care. Death is death whoever the dealer. Some cried out that the Tartars were upon them, and both Muslim and Nazarene shook. Cahal found the patriarch bewildered and helpless. With a handful of soldiers, how could he defend the wallless city? He was ready to give up his life in the vain attempt. He could do no more. The Mullahs rallied their people, and for the first time in all history, Muslim and Christian joined forces to defend the city that was holy to both. The great mass of the people fled into the mosques or the cathedrals, or crouched resignedly in the streets, dumbly awaiting the stroke. Men cried on Jehovah and on Allah, and some prophesied a miracle that should deliver the holy city. But in the merciless blue sky, no flaming sword appeared, only the smoke of the pillaging, the flame of the slaughter, and at last the dust clouds of the riders. The patriarch had bunched his pitiful force of men-at-arms, knights, armed pilgrims and Muslims at the Damascus Gate. Useless to man the ruined walls, 
There, they would face the horde and give up their lives, without hope and without fear. Kahal, his weariness half-forgotten in the drunkenness of anticipated battle, reigned beside the patriarch on the great red stallion that had been given him, and cried out suddenly at the sight of a tall, broad man on a rangy Turkish bay. Harun, by all the saints! The other turned towards him and Kahal wavered. Was this Harun? The fellow was clad in the mail shirt and peaked helmet of a Turkish soldier. On his brawny right arm, he bore a round, spiked buckler, and at his belt hung a long, broad scimitar, heavier by pounds than the average Muslim blade. Moreover, Harun had been clean-shaven, and this man wore the fierce, curving mustachios of the Turk. Yet the build of him, that square, dark face, those blazing blue eyes. By the saints, Harun, said Kahal heartily, what do you hear? Allah blast me if I be any Hurun, answered the soldier in a deep growling voice. I am Akbar, the soldier, come to Al-Quds on pilgrimage. You have mistaken me for another. Kahal frowned. The voice was not even that of Hurun. Yet surely, in all the world, there was not such another pair of eyes. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, it is of no moment. Where are you going? The man had reined about. To the hills, answered the soldier. We can do no good by dying here. Best come with me. From the dust, it is the whole horde that is riding upon us. Flee without striking a blow? Not I, snapped Kahal. Go if you fear. Akbar swore loudly. By Allah and by Allah, a man had better place his head beneath an elephant's tread than call me coward. I'll stand my ground as long as any Nazarene. Kahal turned away shortly, irritated by the fellow's manner and by his boasting. Yet for all the soldier's wrath, it seemed to the gale that a vagrant twinkle lighted his fierce eyes as though he shook with inward mirth. Then Kahal forgot him. A wail went up from the housetops where the helpless people watched their oncoming doom. The horde had swept into sight up from the hazes of the Jordan's gorge. The skies shook with the clamour of the kettle drums. The earth trembled with the thunder of the hooves. The headlong speed of the yelling fiends numbed the minds of their victims. From the steppes of high Asia, these barbarians had fled before the Mongols, like thistledown flying before the wind. Drunken with the blood of slaughtered tribes, ten thousand strong they surged on Jerusalem, where thousands of helpless folk knelt shuddering. Kahal saw anew the hideous figures which had haunted his half-delirious dreams as he swayed in the saddle on that long flight. Tall, rangy steeds on which crouched the broad forms of the riders in wolfskins and mail, square dark faces, eyes glaring like mad dogs from beneath the high fur caps or peaked helms, standards with the heads of wolves, panthers and bears. Headlong they swept down the Damascus road, leaping their horses over the broken walls, crowding through the ruined gates at breakneck speed, and headlong they smote the clump of defenders which spurred to meet them, smote them, broke them, shattered them, trampled them down and under, and over their mangled bodies, struck the heart of the doomed city. Red hell reigned rampant in the streets of Jerusalem, where helpless men, women, and children ran screaming before the slayers who rode them down, howling like wolves, spitting babes on their lances and holding them high like gory standards. Under the frenzied hooves, pitiful forms fell writhing and blood flooded the gutters. Dark stained hands tore the garments from shrieking girls, and lance butts shattered doors and windows behind which cowered terrified prey. All objects of worth were ripped from their places, and screams of agony 
rose to the smoke-fouled heavens as the victims were tortured with steel and fire to make them give up their pitiful treasures. Death stalked howling through the streets of Jerusalem, and men blasphemed their gods as they died. In the first irresistible flood of that charge, such defenders as were not instantly ridden down had been torn apart and swept back in utter confusion. The weight of the impact had swept Red Kahal's steed away as on the crest of a flood, and he found himself reining about in a narrow alley, where he had been tossed as a bit of driftwood is flung back into a back eddying by a rushing tide. He had lost sight of the patriarch, and had no doubt that he lay among the trampled dead before the Damascus gate. His sword was red to the hilt, his soul ablaze with the battle lust, his brain sick with fury and horror as the cries of the butchered city smote his ears. I'll leave my corpse before the sepulchre, he growled, wheeling, spurring up the alley. He raced down a narrow winding street and emerged upon the Via Dolorosa, just as the first Charesmian came flying along it, scimitar dripping crimson. The red stallion's shoulder brushed the barbarian's stirrup, and Cahal's sword flashed like a sunburst. The Charesmian's head leaped from his shoulders on an arc of crimson, and the gale yelped with murderous exultation. And now came another riding like the wind, and Cahal saw it was Akbar. The soldier reined in and shouted, Well, good sir, are you still determined to sacrifice both our lives? Your life is your own, my life is mine, roared Cahal, eyes blazing. He saw that a group of horsemen had ridden up to the sepulchre from another street and were dismounting, shouting in their barbaric tongue, splattering the holy stones with blood drops from their blades. In a red mist of fury, Cahal smote them as an avalanche smites the pines. His whistling sword cleft buckler and helmet, severing necks and splitting skulls. Under the hammering hoofs of his screaming charger, men rolled with smashed heads, and even in this madness, Cahal was aware that he was not alone. Akbar had charged after him, his great voice roaring above the clamour, and the heavy scimitar in his left hand crashed through mail and flesh and bone. The men before the sepulchre lay in a silent, gory heap when Cahal reined back and shook the bloody mist from his eyes. Akbar roared in a strange tongue and smote him thunderously on the shoulders. Bogdar, Bogutir, he roared, his eyes dancing, and no longer Cahal doubted that he was Harun. You fight like a hero by Erlik, but come, Malik, you have offered a noble sacrifice to your god, and he'll hardly blame you for saving yourself now. Thunder of Allah, man, we cannot fight ten thousand. Ride on, answered Gahal, shaking the red drops from his blade. Here, I die. Well, laughed Akbar, if you wish to throw away your life here where it will do no good, that's your affair. The heathen may thank you, but your brothers scarcely will, when the raiders smite them suddenly. The horsemen are all dead or hemmed in the alleys. Only you and I escaped that charge. Who will carry the news of the raid to the Frankish barons? You speak the truth, said Gahal shortly. Let us go. The pair wheeled away and galloped down the street just as a howling horde came flying up the other end. Beyond the shattered walls, Gahal looked back to see a mounting flame. He hid his face in his hands. Wounds of God, he groaned. They are burning the sepulchre. And defiling the Al-Aqsa Mosque too. I doubt not, said Akbar tranquilly. Well, that which is written will come to pass, and no man may escape his fate. All things pass away, yea, even the holy of holies. Cahal shook his head, soul-sick. They rode through the toiling bands of fugitives who screamed and caught at his stirrups, but Cahal steeled his heart. 
If he was to bear warning to the barons, he could not be burdened by helpless ones. The road of pillage and slaughter faded into the distance. Only the smoke stood up among the hills, mute witness of the horror, and Akbar laughed gustily. By Allah, he swore, smiting his saddlebow. These Khorezmians are woundy fighters. They ride like Tartars and slay like Turks. Right well would I lead them into battle. I'd rather fight beside them than against them. Gahal made no reply. His strange companion seemed to him like a fawn, a soulless, fantastic being full of titanic laughter at all human things, a creature outside the boundaries of men's dreams and reverences. Akbar spoke abruptly. Here our roads part for a space, Malik. Your road lies to Ascalon, mine to El-Kahir. Why to Cairo, Akbar, or Harun, or whatever your name is? asked Kahal. Because I have business with that great oaf, Baibars, whom the devil fly away with, yelled Akbar, and his shout of laughter floated back above the hoofbeats. It was hours later when Kahal, pushing his horse as hard as he dared, met the travellers. A slender knight in full mail and visored helmet, with a single attendant, a big Karl with a rough red beard, who wore a horned helmet and a shirt of scale mail and bore a heavy axe. Something slumbering stirred as he looked on that fierce, bluff face, and he reined in. Man, where have I seen you before? The fierce, frosty eyes met him levelly. By Odin, I can't say that. I am Wolfgar the Dane, and this is my master. Kahal glanced at the silent knight with his plain shield. Through the bars of the visor, shattered eyes looked at him. Great God. A shock went through Kahal, leaving him bewildered and shaken with a thousand racing chaotic thoughts. He leaned forward, striving to peer through the lowered visor, and the knight drew back with an almost womanish gesture of rebuke. Kahal reddened. I crave your pardon, sir, he said. I did not intend this seeming rudeness. My master has taken a vow not to speak or reveal his features until he has accomplished his penance, broke in the rough Dane. He is known as the masked knight. We journey to Jerusalem. Sorrowfully, Kahal shook his head. No Christian may ride thither. The Paynim from the outer steps have swept over the walls, and the Holy of Holies lies in smoking ruins. The Dane's bearded mouth gaped. Jerusalem, taken, he mouthed stupidly. Why, good sir, that cannot be. How would God allow his holy city to fall into the hands of the infidels? I know not, said Kahal bitterly. The ways of God and his infinite mercy are past my knowledge. But the streets of Jerusalem run with the blood of his people, and the sepulchre is black with the flames of the heathen. Perplexed, the dang tugged at his red beard and glanced at his master, sitting image-like in the saddle. By Odin, he growled, what are we to do now? There is but one thing to be done, answered Kahal. Ride back to Ascalon and give warning. I was going thither, but if you will do this thing, I will seek Walter de Brienne. Tell the Seneschal of Ascalon that Jerusalem has fallen to the heathen Turks of the outer steppes, known as the Charesmians, who number some ten thousand men. Bid him arm for war, and let no grass grow under your horse's hoofs in going. And Cahal reined aside and took the road for Jaffa. Chapter 6 Cahal found Walter de Brienne in Ramlar, brooding in the white mosque over the sepulchre of St. George. Fainting with weariness, the gale told his tale in a few stark, bare words, and even they seemed to drag, leaden and lifeless, from his blackened lips. 
He was but dimly aware that men led him into a house and laid him on a couch, and there he slept the sun around. He woke to a deserted city, horror-stricken. The people of Ramlah had gathered up their belongings and fled along the road to Jaffa, crying that the end of the world was come. But Walter de Brienne had ridden north, leaving a single man-at-arms to bid Gahal follow him to Acre. The gale rode through the hollow echoing streets, feeling like a ghost in a dead city. The western gates swung idly open, and a spear lay on the worn flags, as if the watch had dropped their weapons and fled in sudden panic. Cahal rode through the fields of date palms and groves of fig trees, hugging the shadow of the wall, and out on the plain he overtook staggering clouds of frantic folk burdened with their goods and crying with weariness and thirst. When the fugitives saw Cahal, they screamed with fear to know if the slayers were upon them. He shook his head, pushing through. It seemed logical to him that the Koresmians would sweep to the sea and their path might well take them by Ramlah. But as he rode, he scanned the horizon behind him and saw neither smoke rack nor dust cloud. He left the Jaffa road with its hurrying throngs and swung north. Already the tail had passed like wildfire from mouth to mouth. The villages were deserted as the folk thronged to the coast towns or retired into towers on the heights. Christian Utremer stood with its back to the sea, facing the onrushing menace out of the east. Cahal rode into Acre, where the waning powers of Utremer were already gathering, hawk-eyed knights in worn mail, the barons with their wolfish men-at-arms. Sultan Ismail of Damascus had sent swift emissaries urging an alliance, which had been quickly accepted. Knights of St. John, from their great grim crack des chevaliers, Templars with their red skull caps and untrimmed beards rode in from all parts of the kingdom, the grim, silent watchdogs of Outremer. Survivors had drifted to Ascalon and Jaffa, lame, weary folk, a bare handful who had escaped the torch and sword and survived the hardships of the flight. They told tales of horror. 7,000 Christians, mostly women and children, had perished in the sack of Jerusalem. The holy sepulchre had been blackened by flame, the altars of the city shattered, the shrines burned with fire. Muslim had suffered with Christian, the patriarch was among the refugees, saved from death by the valour and faithfulness of a nameless Rhinelander man-at-arms who hid a cruel wound until he said, Yonder be the towers of Ascalon, master, and since you have no more need of me, I lie down and sleep, for I be sore weary. And he died in the dust of the road. And word came of the Koresmian horde. They had not tarried long in the broken city, but swept on, down through the deserts of the south to Gaza, where they lay encamped at last after their long drift. And pregnant, mysterious hints floated up from the blue web of the south, and de Brienne sent for Cahal O'Donnell. Good sir, said the baron, my spies tell me that a host of Memluks is advancing from Egypt. Their object is obvious to take possession of the city the Khoresmians left desolate. But what else? There are hints of an alliance between the Melmuks and the Nomads. If this be the case, we may as well be shriven before we go into battle, for we cannot stand against both hosts. The men of Damascus cry out against the Khoresmians for befouling the holy places, Muslim as well as Christian. But these Memluks are of Turkish blood, and who knows the mind of Baibars, their master? Sir Kahal, will you ride to Baibars and parley with him? You saw with your own eyes the sack of Jerusalem and can tell him the truth of how the pagans befouled Al-Aqsa as well as the sepulchre. After all, 
he is a Muslim. At least learn if he means to join hands with these devils. Tomorrow, when the cohorts of Damascus come up, we advance southward to go against the foe, ere he can come against us. Ride you ahead of the host as an emissary, under a flag of truce, with as many men as you wish. Give me the flag, said Gahal. I'll ride alone. He rode out of the camp before sunset on a palfrey, bearing the flag of peace and without his sword. Only a battle axe hung at his saddlebow. As a precaution against bandits who respected no flag, as he rode south through a half-deserted land, he guided his course by the words of the wandering Arab herdsman who knew all things that went on in the land, and beyond Ascalon he learned that the host had crossed the Jafar and was encamped to the southwest of Gaza. The close proximity to the Keresmians made him wary as he swung far to the east to avoid any scouts of the pagans who might be combing the countryside. He had no trust in the peace token as a safeguard against the barbarians. He rode in a dreamy twilight into the Egyptian camp which lay about a cluster of wells a bare league from Gaza. Misgivings smote him as he noted their arms, their numbers, their evident discipline. He dismounted, displaying the peace gonfalon and his empty sword belt. The wild memlooks in their silvered mail and heron feathers swarmed about him in sinister silence, as if minded to try their curved blades on his flesh, but they escorted him to a spacious silk pavilion in the midst of the camp. Black slaves with wide-tipped scimitars stood ranged about the entrance, and from within a great voice, strangely familiar, boomed a song. This is the pavilion of the emir, even Baibars the panther, Kfar growled a bearded Turk, and Cahal said as haughtily as if he sat on his lost throne amid the Galalglaks, lead me to your lord, dog, and announce me with due respect. The eyes of the gaudily clad ruffian fell suddenly, and with a reluctant salaam he obeyed. Cahal strode into the silken tent and heard the melmuk boom, the lord Kazil of Malak, emissary of the barons from Palestine. In the great pavilion, a single huge candle on a lacquered table shed a golden light, and the chiefs of Egypt sprawled about on silken cushions, quaffing the forbidden wine. And dominating the scene, a tall, broad figure in voluminous silken trousers, satin vest, a broad cloth of gold girdle, without a doubt, Baibars, the ogre of the south. And Kahal caught his breath, that coarse red hair, that square dark face, those blazing blue eyes. I bid you welcome, Lord Kafar, boomed Baibars. What news do you bring? You were Harun the Traveller, said Kahal slowly, and at Jerusalem you were Akbar the Soldier. Baibars rocked with laughter. By Allah, he roared, I bear a scar on my head to this day as a relic of that night's bout in Damietta. By Allah, you gave me a woundy clout. You play your parts like a mama, said Kahal, but what reason for these deceptions? Well, said Waibars, I trust no spy but myself, for one thing. For another, it makes life worth living. I did not lie when I told you that night in Damietta that I was celebrating my escape from Baibars. By Allah, the affairs of the world weigh heavily on Baibars' shoulders. But Harun the Traveller, he is a mad and merry rogue with a free mind and a roving foot. I play the mama and escape from myself and try to be true to each part, so long as I play it. Sit ye and drink. Gahal shook his head as his carefully thought-out plans of diplomacy fell away, futile as dust. 
He struck straight and spoke bluntly and to the point. A word and my task is done, Baibars, he said. I come to find whether you mean to join hands with the pagans who desecrated the sepulchre and Al-Aqsa. Baibars drank and considered, though Gahal knew well that the Tatar had already made up his mind long before. Our Quds is mine for the taking, he said lazily. I will cleanse the mosques, I. By Allah, the Khorezmians shall do the work most piously. They'll make good Muslims and winged warmen. With them I sow the thunder. Who reaps the tempest? Yet you fought against them at Jerusalem, Kahal reminded bitterly. I, frankly admitted the emir, but there they would have cut my throat as quick as any Franks. I could not say to them, hold dogs, I am by bars. Kahal bowed his lion-like head, knowing the futility of arguing. Then my work is done. I demand safe conduct from your camp. Baibars shook his head, grinning. Nay, Malik, you are thirsty and weary. Bide here as my guest. Kahal's hand moved involuntarily toward his empty girdle. Baibars was smiling, but his eyes glittered between narrowed lids and the slaves about him half drew their scimitars. You keep me prisoner despite the fact I am an ambassador? You came without invitation, grinned Baibars. I asked no parley. Dizarro. A tall, lank Venetian in black velvet stepped forward. Dizarro, said Baibars in a jesting voice. The Malik Kahal is our guest. Mount ye and ride like the devil to the host of the Franks. There say that Kahal sent you secretly. Say that the Lord Kahal is twisting that grateful Baibars around his finger and pledges to keep him aloof from the battle. The Venetian grinned bleakly and left the tent avoiding Cajal's smouldering eyes. The gale knew that the trade-lusting Italians were often in secret league with the Muslims, but few stooped so low as this renegade. Well, bye bars, Cajal said with a shrug of his shoulders. Since you must play the dog, there is naught I can do. I have no sword. I'm glad of that, responded bye bars candidly. Come, fret not. It is but your misfortune to oppose bye bars and his destiny. Men are my tools at the Damascus Gate. I knew that those red-handed riders were steel to forge into a Muslim sword. By Allah, Malik, if you could have seen me riding like the wind into Egypt, marching back across the Jafar without pausing to rest, riding into the camp of the pagans with mullahs shouting the advantages of Islam, convincing their wild Quran Shah that his only safety lay in conversion and alliance. I do not fully trust the wolves, and I pitched my camp apart from them. But when the Franks come up, they will find our hordes joined for battle, and should be horribly surprised if that dog Dizarro does his work well. Your treachery makes me a dog in the eyes of my people, Kahal said bitterly. None can call you traitor, said Baibar serenely, because soon all will cease to be. Relics of an outworn age, I will rid the land of them, be at ease. He extended a brimming goblet, and Kahal took it, sipped at it absently, and became and began to pace up and down the pavilion, as a man paces in worry and despair. The Memlux watched him, grinning surreptitiously. Well, said Baibars, I was a Tadar prince, I was a slave, and I will be a prince once again. Quran Shah's shaman read the stars for me, and he says that if I win the battle against the Franks, I will be sultan of Egypt. The emir was sure of his chiefs, thought Kahal, to thus flaunt his ambition openly. The Gael said, The Franks care not who is Sultan of Egypt. Aye, but battles and the corpses of men 
are stairs whereby I climb to fame. Each war I win clinches my hold on power. Now the Franks stand in my path, I will brush them aside. But the shaman prophesied a strange thing, that a dead man's sword will deal me a grievous hurt when the Franks come up against us. From the corner of his eye, Cahal saw that his apparent aimless strides had taken him close to the table on which stood the great candle. He lifted the goblet towards his lips, then, with a lightning flick of his wrist, dashed the wine into the flame. It spluttered and went out, plunging the tent into total darkness, and simultaneously Cahal ripped a hidden dirk from under his arm, and like a steel spring released, bounded towards the place where he knew Baibar sat. He catapulted into somebody in the dark, and his dirk hummed and sank home. A death scream ripped the clamour, and the gale wrenched the blade free and sprang away. No time for another stroke. Men yelled and fell over each other, and steel clanged wildly. Cahal's crimson blade ripped a long slit in the silk of the tent wall, and he sprang into the outer starlight, where men were shouting and running towards the pavilion. Behind him, a bull-like bellowing told the gale that his blindly stabbing Dirk had found some other flesh than Baibar's. He ran swiftly towards the horse lines, leaping over taut tent ropes, a shadow among a thousand racing figures. A mounted sentry came galloping through the confusion, firelight gleaming on his drawn scimitar. As the panther leaps, Gahal sprang, landing behind the saddle. The Memluk's startled yell broke into a gurgle as the keen dirk crossed his throat. Flinging the corpse to the earth, the gale quieted the snorting, plunging steed and reined it away. Like the wind, he rode through the swarming camp and the free air of the desert struck his face. He gave the Arab horse the rein and heard the clamour of pursuit die away behind him. Somewhere to the north lay the slowly advancing host of the Christians, and Cahal rode north. He hoped to overtake the Venetian on the road, but the other had too long a start. Men who rode for Baibars rode with a flowing rein. The Franks were breaking camp at dawn when a Venetian rode headlong into their lines, gasping a tale of escape and flight, and demanding to see Debrienne. Within the baron's half-diminished tent, Desaro gasped, The Lord Cahal sent me, Signor. He holds Baibars in parley. He gives his word that the Melmluks will not join the Koresmians, and urges you to press forward. Outside, a clatter of hoofs split the din. A lone rider, whose flying hair was like a veil of blood against the crimson of dawn. At Dibrian's tent, the hard-checked steed slid to its haunches. Gahal leapt to the earth and rushed in like an avenging blast. Dizara cried out and paled, frozen by his doom. Till Cahal's dirk split his heart and the Venetian rolled, an earthen-faced corpse, to Walter de Brienne's feet. The baron sprang up, bewildered. Cahal! What news in God's name? Baibars joins arms with the pagans, answered Cahal. De Brienne bowed his head. Well, no man can ask to live forever. Chapter 7 Through the drear, grey, dusty desert, the host of Outremer crawled southward. The black and white standard of the Templars floated beside the cross of the Patriarch, and the black banners of Damascus billowed in the faintly stirring air. No king led them. The Emperor Friedrich claimed the kingship of Jerusalem, and he skulked in Sicily, plotting against the Pope. De Brienne had been chosen to lead the barons, and he shared his command with Al-Mansur el-Haman, warlord of Damascus. 
They went into camp within sight of the Muslim outposts, and all night the wind that blew up from the south throbbed with the beat of drums and the clash of cymbals. Scouts reported the movements of the Khwarezmian horde and that the Memluks had joined them. In the grey light of dawn, Red Kahal came from his tent fully armed. On all sides the host was moving, striking tents and buckling armour. In the elusive light, Kahal saw them moving like phantoms, the tall patriarch, shriving and blessing, the giant form of the master of the temple amongst his grim war dogs, the heron-feathered gold helmet of Al-Mansur, and he stiffened as he saw a slim, mailed shape moving through the swarm, followed by a rough figure with axe on shoulder. Bewildered, he shook his head. Why did his heart pound so strangely at the sight of that mysterious masked knight? Of whom did the slim youth remind him, and of what dim, bitter memories? He felt as one plunged into a web of illusion, and now a similar figure fell upon Kahal and embraced him. By Allah, swore Sheikh Saliman ibn Omad. But for thee, I had slept in the ruins of my keep. They came like the wind, those dogs, but they found the gates closed, the arches on the walls, and after one assault they passed on to easier prey. Ride with me this day, my son. Kahal assented, liking the lean, hardy old desert hawk, and so it was in the glittering plume-helmeted ranks of Damascus the gale rode to battle. In the dawn they moved forward, no more than 12,000 men, to meet the Memluks and nomads, 15,000 warriors, not counting the light-armed irregulars. In the centre of the right wing, the Templars held their accustomed place, in advance of the rest, 500 grim iron men, flanked on one side by the Knights of St. John and the Teutonic Knights, some 300 in all, and on the other by the handful of barons, with the Patriarch and his iron mace. The combined forces of their men-at-arms did not exceed 7,000. The rest of the host consisted of the cavalry of Damascus, in the centre of the army, and the warriors of the Amir of Karak, who held the left wing, lean, hawk-faced Arabs, better at raiding than at fighting pitched battles. Now the desert blackened ahead of them with the swarms of their foes. The drums throbbed and bellowed. The warriors of Damascus sang and chanted. But the men of the cross were silent, like men riding to a known doom. Kahal, riding beside Al-Mansur and Sheikh Saliman, let his gaze sweep down those grim, grey-mailed ranks and found that which he sought. Again, his heart leapt curiously at the sight of the slim, masked knight, riding close to the patriarch. Close at the knight's side bobbed the horned helmet of the Dane. Kahal cursed bewilderingly. And now both hosts advanced. The dark swarms of the desert riders moving ahead of the ordered ranks of the Memluks. The Khwarezmians trotted forward in some formation, and Kahal saw the Crusaders close their ranks to meet the charge, without slackening even their pace. The wild riders struck in the rolls, and the dark swarm rolled swiftly across the sands. Then suddenly they shifted as a crafty swordsman shifts, wheeling in perfect order, they swept past the front of the knights and burst into a headlong run, thundered down on the banners of Damascus. The trick, born in the brain of Baibars, took the whole allied host by surprise. The Arabs yelled and prepared to meet the onset, but they were bewildered by the mad fury and numbing speed of the charge. Riding like madmen, the Khwarezmians bent their heavy bows and shot from the saddle, 
and clouds of feathered shafts hummed before them. The leather bucklers and light mail of the Arabs were useless against those whistling missiles, and along the Damascus front, warriors fell like ripe grain. Al-Mansur was screaming commands for a counter-charge, but in the teeth of that deadly blast, the dazed Arabs milled helplessly in the midst of the confusion. The charge crashed into their lines. Kahal saw again the broad squat figures, the wild dark faces, the madly hacking scimitars, broader and heavier than the light Damascus blades. He felt again the irresistible concussion of the Khrezmian charge. His great red stallion staggered the impact, and a whistling blade shivered on his shield. He stood up in his stirrups, slashing right and left, and felt male mesh part under his edge, saw headless corpses drop from their saddles. Up and down the line, the blades were flashing like spray in the sun, and the Damascus ranks were breaking and melting away. Man to man, the Arabs might have held fast, but dazed and outnumbered, that demoralizing rain of arrows had begun the rout that the curved swords completed. Kahal hurled back with the rest, vainly striving to hold his ground as he slashed and thrust, heard old Suleiman ibn Omad cursing like a fiend beside him as his scimitar wove a shining wheel of death about his head. Dogs and the sons of dogs, yelled the old hawk. Had ye but stood a moment, the day had been yours. By Allah, pagan, will you press me close? So, ha, now carry your head to hell in your hand. Ho, children, rally to me in the Lord Kahal. My son, keep at my side. The fight is already lost and we must hack clear. Suleiman's hawks reined in about him and Kahal, and the compact little knot of desperate men slashed through, riding down the snarling wolfish shapes that barred their path and so rode out of the red frenzy of the Malay into the open desert. The Damascus clans were in full flight, their black banners streaming ingloriously behind them, yet there was no shame to be attached to them. That unexpected charge had simply swept them away like a shattered dam before a torrent. On the left wing, the Amar of Karak was giving back, his ranks crumbling before the singing arrows and flying blades of the tribesmen, so far, the Memluks had taken no part in the battle, but now they rode forward and Kahal saw the huge form of Baibars galloping into the fray. Beating the howling nomads from their flying prey and reforming their straggling lines, the wolfskin-clad riders swung about and trotted across the sands, reinforced by the Memluks in their silvered mail and heron-feathered helmets. So suddenly had the storm burst that before the Franks could wheel their ponderous lines to support the centre, their Arab allies were broken and flying, but the men of the cross came doggedly onwards. Now the real death grip, grunted Suleiman, with but one possible end. By Allah, my head was not made to dangle at a pagan saddlebow. The road to the desert is open to us. Ha, my son, are you mad? For Kahal wheeled away, jerking his rein from the clutching hand of the protesting sheikh, Across the corpse-littered plain, he galloped toward the grey steel ranks that swept inexorably onwards. Riding hard, he swept into line, just as the elephants trumpeted for the onset. With a deep-throated roar, the Knights of the Cross charged to meet the onrushing hordes through a barbed and feathered cloud. Heads down, grimly facing the singing shafts that could not check them, the Knights swept on in their last charge. With an earthquake shock, the two hosts crashed together and this time it was the Khrezmian horde which staggered. 
The long lances of the Templars ripped their foremost line to shreds, and the great charges of the Crusaders overthrew horse and rider. Close to the heels of the warrior monks thundered the rest of the Christian host, swords flashing. Dazed in their turn, the wild riders in their wolfskins reeled backward, howling and plying their deadly blades. But the long swords of the Europeans hacked through iron mesh and steel plate to split skull and bosoms. Squat corpses choked the ground under the horses' hoofs as deep into the heart of the disorganized horde the knights slashed and the yells of the tribesmen changed to howls of dismay as the whole battle mass surged backward. And now Bybars, seeing the battle tremble in the balance, deployed swiftly, skirted the ragged edge of the melee and hurled his memlooks like a thunderbolt at the backs of the crusaders. The fresh, unwearied Bahiras struck home, and the Franks found themselves hemmed in on all sides as the wavering Khorasmians stiffened and with a fresh resurge of confidence renewed the fight. Leaguered about them, the Christians fell fast, but even in dying they took bitter toll. Back to back, in a slowly shrinking ring facing outward, about a rocky knoll on which was planted the Patriarch's Cross, the last host of Outremer made its last stand. Until the red stallion fell dying, Red Gahal fought in the saddle, and then he joined the ring of men on foot. In the berserk fury that gripped him, he felt not the sting of wounds. Time faded in an eternity of plunging bodies and frantic steel, of chaotic, wild figures that smote and died. In the red maze, he saw a gold-mailed figure roll under his sword, and knew, in a brief passing flash of triumph, that he had slain Quran Shah. Khan of the Horde, and remembering Jerusalem, he ground the dying face under his mailed heel, and the grim fight raged on. Beside Gahal fell the grim master of the temple, the Seneschal of Antioch, the Lord of Acre. The thin ring of defenders staggered beneath the repeated charges. Blood blinded them. The heat of the sun smote fierce upon them. They were choked with dust and maddened with wounds. Yet, with broken swords and notched axes they smote, and against that iron ring, Baibars hurled his slayers again and again, and again and again he saw his hordes stagger back, broken. The sun was sinking towards the horizon when, foaming with rage that for once drowned his gargantuan laughter, he launched an irresistible charge upon the dying handful that tore them apart and scattered their corpses over the plain. Cahal O'Donnell walked dazedly amongst the dead, the notched and crimsoned sword trailing in his weary hand. His helmet was gone, his arms and legs gashed, and from a deep wound beneath his hauberk, blood trickled sluggishly, and suddenly his head jerked up. Cahal! Cahal! He drew an uncertain hand across his eyes. Surely the delirium of battle was upon him, but again the voice rose in agony. Cahal! It was close to a boulder-strewn knoll where the dead lay thick. Among them lay Wolfgar, the Dane, his unshaven lip a snarl, his red beard tilted truculently, even in death. His mighty hand still gripped his axe, notched and clotted red, and a gory heap of corpses beneath him gave mute evidence of his berserk fury. Cahal! The gale dropped to his knees beside the slender figure of the masked knight. He lifted off the helmet to reveal a wealth of unruly black tresses, grey eyes luminous and deep. A choked cry escaped him. Saints of God! Eleanor! I dream! 
This is madness. The slender male arms groped about his neck, the eyes misted with growing blindness. Through the pliant links of the hauberk, blood seeped steadily. You are not mad, Red Kahal, she whispered. You do not dream. I am come to you at last, though I find you but in death. I did you a deathly wrong, and only when you were gone from me, forever, did I know I loved you. O Kahal, we were born under a blind, unquiet star, both seeking goals of fire and mist. I loved you, and knew it not until I lost you. You were gone. I knew not where. The Lady Eleanor de Courcy died then, and in her place was born the masked knight. I took the cross in penance. Only one faithful servitor knew my secret and rode with me to the ends of the earth. I, muttered Kahal, I remember him now. Even in death he was faithful. When I met you among the hills below Jerusalem, she whispered faintly, my heart tore at its strings to burst from my bosom and fall in the dust at your feet but I dare not reveal myself to you. Ah, Kahal, I have done bitter penance. I have died for the cross this day like a knight, but I ask not forgiveness of God. Let him do with me as he will. But oh, it is forgiveness of you I crave, and dare not ask. I freely forgive you, said Kahal heartily. Fret no more about it, girl. It was but a little wrong, after all. Faith, all things, and the deeds and dreams of men are fleeting and unstable as moon mist. Even the world which has here ended. Then kiss me, she gasped, fighting hard against the onrushing darkness. Kahal passed his arm under her shoulders, lifting her to his blackened lips. With a convulsive effort, she stiffened half erect in his arms, her eyes blazing with a strange light. The sun sets and the world ends, she cried. But I see a crown of red gold on your head, red Kahal, and I shall sit beside you on a throne of glory. Hail Kahal, chief of Uland. Hail Kahal Ruad, Adri Irian. She sank back, blood starting from her lips. Kahal eased her to the earth and rose like a man in a dream. He turned towards the low slope and staggered with a passing wave of dizziness. The sun was sinking towards the desert's rim. To his eyes, the whole plain seemed veiled in a mist of blood through which vague phantasmal figures moved in ghostly pageantry. A chaotic clamour rose like the acclaim to a king, and it seemed to him that all the shouts merged into one thunderous roar. Hail, Kahal Ruad, Andri na Irayan. He shook the mist from his brain and laughed. He strode down the slope, and a group of hawk-like figures rode down upon him with swift rattle of hoofs. A bow twanged, and an iron arrowhead smashed through his mail. With a laugh, he tore it out, and blood flooded his halberk. A lance thrust at his throat, and he caught the shaft in his left hand, lunging upwards. The grey sword's point rent through the rider's mail, and his death scream was still echoing when Kahal stepped from the slash of a scimitar and hacked off the hand that wielded it. A spear point bent on the length of his mail, and the lean grey sword leapt like a serpent stroke, splitting helmet and head, spilling the rider from the saddle. Kahal dropped his point to the earth and stood with bare head thrown back as a gleaming clump of horsemen swept by. The foremost reined his white horse back on his haunches with a shout of laughter, and so the victor faced the vanquished. Behind Kahal, the sun was setting in a sea of blood, and his hair floating in the rising breeze caught the last glints of the sun, and so it seemed to Baibars the gale wore a misty crown of red gold. Well, Malik, 
laughed the Tatar. They who oppose the destiny of Baibars lie under my horse's hoofs, and over them I ride up the gleaming stair of empire. Kahal laughed, and blood started from his lips. With a lion-like gesture, he threw up his head, flicking high his sword in kingly salute. Lord of the East, his voice rang like a trumpet call, welcome to the fellowship of kings, to the glory and the witch fire, the gold and the moon mist, the splendor and the death. By bars, a king hails thee. And he leapt and struck as a tiger leaps. Not by bars stallion that screamed and reared, not his trained swordsman, not his own quickness, could have saved the mem look then. Death alone saved him, death that took the gale in the midst of his leap. Red Cahal died in midair, and it was a corpse that crashed against Baibar's saddle, a falling sword in a dead hand, that, the momentum of the blow, completing its arc, scarred Baibar's forehead and split his eyeball. His warriors shouted and reined forward. Baibar slumped in his saddle, sick with agony, blood gushing from between the fingers that gripped his wound. As his chiefs cried out and sought to aid him, he lifted his head and saw, with his single, pain-dimmed eye, Red Kahal lying dead at his horse's feet. A smile was on the gale's lips, and the grey sword lay in shards beneath him, shattered, by some freak of chance, on the stones as it fell beside the wielder. Ahakim, in the name of Allah, groaned Baibars, I am a dead man. Nay, you are not dead, my lord, said one of his Memluk chiefs. It is the wound from the dead man's sword, and it is grievous enough, but bethink you, here has the host of Franks, Cease to be. The barons are all taken or slain, and the cross of the patriarch has fallen. Such of the Khorasmians as live are ready to serve you as their new lord, since Kazil Malik slew their Khan. The Arabs have fled, and Damascus lies helpless before you, and Jerusalem is ours. You will yet be Sultan of Egypt. I have conquered, answered Baibars, shaken for the first time in his wild life, but I am half blind. And of what avail to slay men of that breed? They will come again and again and again, riding to death like a feast because of the restlessness of their souls through all the centuries. What though we prevail this little now? They are a race unconquerable, and at last, in a year or a thousand years, they will trample Islam under their feet and ride again through the streets of Jerusalem. And over the red field of battle, night fell shuddering. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Alex. Hi, I'm Connor. We're going to talk about The Sowers of the Thunder by Robert E. Howard. First published in Oriental Stories, winter 1932. Uh, Alex, you were saying this is a very short-lived magazine, only six issues, or nine issues? Nine issues of this. Uh, It was a spinoff of Weird Tales. Yeah, same editor? Same editor was Farnsworth. Mm. Um, they were trying to capture a different market, 
turns out there's less of a market for historical stories than there is for weird, creepy stories. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I liked it. Uh, I, I, I like the issues cause it's the same authors, right? Um, Gigi Pendarves, uh, if that's how you pronounce her name. Um, I think she's British. She's in here just in this issue. Hung Long Tom is not a Chinese dude. Uh, that's his fake name, but he's from Weird Tales as well. Otis and Otis Albert Edelbert Klein and E. Hoffman Price. J. Allen St. John cover. Come on. Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard. <laughs> what's, what's to go wrong? I guess there is no. What's the Klein, what's the Klein story? The Kleins. The Dragoman's Jest? Yeah, I think that's our long running series as well. The Dragoman series. He's yeah. like the uh he's like the knockoff Edgar Rice Burroughs, right? That's Yeah, oh, Otis Elderberg Klein is, I think. E. Offman Price is his own beast. Um a weird tales guy. Um but it's 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 the it's the depression too. Um, and and then it went to magic. It turned into magic carpet. Yep. Um, yep. They did five issues of magic carpet. What uh, do uh, they, they titled it? And it I don't. I don't do much better. Yeah. Um, I guess it has the weird element in that it has magic in the title. It, but it's picking up uh, the Arabian Nights theme, I guess. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what they're going for in the marketing. But the stories were mostly historical fiction. Um, yeah. Middle Eastern. Indian, that kind of thing. I'm just I think in maybe here. an issue with this magazine is that uh, <coughs> I've never read any of it or I'm not familiar. That. It's not immediately clear what kind of stories they're publishing other than they're set in the Orient. Right. Set in it's the like, East. It, yeah, yeah, it's historical fiction, but I wouldn't have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you look at the I- images on the cover, right? There's guys with scimitars and then there's uh, Asians with... Uh, yeah. It's yellow peril sort of feel. It's everything the mm. mystical East. Um, yeah, I think, Orientalism. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If Evan was here, he would call it uh, probably Orientalism, um, which I'm in favor of. I'm interested in what's going on in the East. I, I don't go there often, so I want to know if there's anything exciting. I'd like to know if uh, there was a genre of Australian story so I can uh, find out what's going on in the land of Upside Down. <laughs> right? Mm. Because it's cool. It's cool to Out, see the exotic. tales. What kind of tales? Outback tales? Outback Bush tales, aren't they called? Bush tales? I don't know. Um, what do you call them? Well, uh, the only thing I think of is maybe shaggy dog stories. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> yeah, sure. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it's usually those... Um, but there's... Uh, Time wasters. Yeah, not so much... Not too much there's not a, a term for folklore tales uh, or like folk tales. Yeah. Um, well, maybe uh, Bush poetry. Yeah. Is a thing. Well, you know what? One thing that was really big, we haven't gotten into the story yet. We will get there. Don't worry, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that was really big, that was really interesting and it's still big, but not anywhere how big it was was all the Northwest adventures. That that was a huge industry, right? Pulp covers, Mr. Pulp covers, Alex? Yeah, and there were a couple of titles. Northwest adventures. It was yep. like a whole magazine. And long running. Yukon Tales. Yukon Tales. Basically, Jack London, you know, made that genre mm. so popular that it lasted 50, 60 years. And it's still, I mean, I remember in the 80s, there was movies coming out that were sort of, 
you know, uh, uh, sort of inspired by. And, like, I think there's a lot of Canadian writers who sort of got careers because they could, you know, they went up north and they, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the names of them, but there's, uh, you know, American movie productions that are set in northern contemporary Canada where um, I heard The Owl Call My Name is one of the novels I was thinking of. and um, People love frontier stories. They want yeah, that story and it's the last frontier, location. right? Other than There's going to space. Stuff can happen. And, well, and you it's and also, I, Jesse, at least saw that version of She that was set up in the Arctic. Right. Because that was, by that point, and and a frontier that they could hand wave as being, you know, unknown enough mm-hmm. to That's why this kingdom. That's why Lovecraft has that uh, excitement about Antarctica. It, it literally is the last unexplored place, right? People mm-hmm. are getting down in there, finding mountains. And, what's in there? We don't know. So the, uh, these historical stories, um, I don't know. I, I don't think that you can sustain a massive market for it, but... Um, Based on the two that I've read out of here, uh, Connor, you read the other one for us as well as this one, um, Hawks of Outremer. Um, I like them. I mean, there's a lot of work going involved. Like, I, I, I thought I knew a lot about Middle Eastern sort of Middle, Middle Ages history because I knew a lot about the, about, uh, you know, the various Crusades. I mean, not millions, but I read Robin Hood, and he goes off some of the stories, right? (laughs) And, you know, King John coming back from the Crusades. And I I read a lot about, you know, the various disastrous Crusades and Crusader states. And uh, yet there's a lot of characters in here who I sort of vaguely recognize by name. But it's uh, it's a lot of work. Do you think that that's part of the um, difficulty? That oh, yeah. Well, Howard admitted, he wrote a letter saying that the reason he invented Conan, the Hyborian Age, is the actual research he had to do for his Oriental Tales was just too much work. He had mm-hmm. too much time in the library, mm-hmm. building out the timeline and finding the people and tracking down. He's like, you know what? If I just make up my own history, I don't have to worry about that. And I could just get pick the and choose the, the scenes, right? Because this has a couple of major battle scenes um, and a couple of minor battle scenes, right? But. Uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't make any any historical errors. I mean, he's making a uh, he's adding a couple of characters who don't exist, and then there's a one who really you know he's a major figure in. It's it's kind of like Hawks in Hawks of Utremer, right? Saladin's a real guy. Um, mm. and actually, don't we have a shout out to uh, our our fake guy from uh. Who's, we do. What's Cormac his name? Cormac. Oh, yeah, Cormac yeah. Fitzjoffrey is in this mentioned, right? He mm. he went off to uh, fabled destination and stole some stuff. And I was thinking maybe yeah. that's the it's, sequel that we haven't read yet, or I haven't is, read. It is, I think. Um, awesome. It's the uh, Sharazar, I think, is yeah. the city. Yeah, because they go to raid the same city, I believe. Well, uh, do they get and there, or they they're just no. plant? Yeah, they're just like we're off there, and then suddenly the horde's coming. Yeah, that's what happens. Um, yeah, I don't think they managed to get there, um, but they're they're following in uh, Cormac's footsteps for that little bit. Yeah, it was a nice little uh, connection, I thought. But um, mm. uh, I Unless will now open the floor. Turn. I will now open the floor. Uh, I uh, 
Trish, you're not supposed to talk about stuff before the podcast, but you you said you didn't think you'd have a lot to say. I wonder if that's true. I because I, I, I think it's different from uh, Conan stuff, right? But there's a lot going on in here. But you know, because there's real people um, and real motivations, like real historical stuff, that also you know he he can't play with it in the same way that he can when it's everything's fictional. So, you you want to explain why you thought you might not have as much to say? Um, sorry, I was muted because my uh, um, heat is going right, but hopefully it's not too loud. Um, uh, yeah, it's mm, I I don't know. It's it's got very nice descriptions and uh-huh. it's very atmospheric. Uh, but I don't care a lot about it. <laughs> it's it's just it doesn't have much emotional appeal to me. Um, the uh, twist at the ending was mildly interesting, but uh, it it just didn't grab me. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I I I, under, uh, I think I understand why. I think I understand why it didn't grab you because I didn't like it in the way I like. Uh, we, you know, we did Jules Aguilar in between um, the two. I think we did in between this and the uh, the um, Hawks of Outremer. I or, think that's what we did. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. at least I show noted it in between, and um, it's a completely different kind of mode for Robert E. Howard. You can see that, it, especially in in places, it's identical style of writing, but in in most of it, it's much more concerned about transferring information. It's not so much info dump as giving you the information you need to see what he's going to do. Yeah, it's very atmospheric. Um, it's if you just want to look at a travelogue. <laughs> yeah, I was I was saying there need to be a map. We um, need a map. But I'm sorry, what? I was I was saying before the podcast start we uh, to Connor that maybe we needed a map because <laughs> uh, I know vaguely where some of the places like I know Damietta's in Egypt right and I know a lot of Acre like I know where some of these places are but uh, the I want to say Shaharazar I'm not sure I'm saying that right um, but that that's another like he actually goes to that city in other stories as well as the one that. Uh, uh, isn't there a um, Afghanistan story? You probably know what I'm talking about here, um, Alex. There's a story where an American, Francis X. Gordon, maybe it is, who goes to... El Borak. El Borak, yeah. He goes to um, an Arabian lost city and steals a gem. What's that one called? The Fire of... Ashurbanipal. Ashur yeah, that's... That's, that's not Xavier X. Gordon. That was a different guy. Yeah. I'm blanking on right now. But yeah. that is that is one of my favorite. Story, it's a great story. It's also the cover of Weird Tales. Um, but it's also got magic, whereas there's no magic in this, right? So the version in Weird Tales had magic. Yeah. The original version didn't. Right. The original version, like there was a snake that mm-hmm. the guy got bit by. And mm-hmm. he tried to sell it. But there was there was a sense that there was magic. Um, it was scary. It was, it was like, um, yeah. But uh, it, having... Having the cover, having the, you know, one of the th- uh, maybe the way way we should approach this, 
Um, I kept thinking about the Conan movie. <laughs> the first one. Because Subutai is not in any of the Conan stories, right? But he's in this. That's true. Uh, what's his Subutai? So That's if you remember the first Conan movie. Hmm? Yeah, he's he, in, in this story, he is um, he is the guy who raised um, Bybars. Bybars, yeah. Right? Um, and he's a historical figure. Bybars is a historical figure, right? Um, mm-hmm. But in the Conan movie, uh, there, the, I think it was the screenwriter or the director uh, was friends. I think it was a screenwriter. was friends with a surfer guy. And he says, you're going to be Subutai. <laughs> And he's like, I'm not an actor. And he says, you're perfect. <laughs> so um, I think his name is Jerry. Uh, what's his name? Con- uh, I want to say Conway. No, that's not. That's Subutai. <laughs> Anyways, he's an Asian looking dude. Jerry Lopez. Um, he's got a great mustache. Mac- yeah, he's, he's, he's a surfer. right? <laughs> he's a California surfer dude. Um, and he is not in any of the Conan stories, but he is a typical Conan companion from, from the comics in that, you know, he fits in like Zula or any character who, you know, goes away and comes back. Um, but I couldn't, I, I never knew where he was lifted from, but a lot of the things that happen in that movie are just lifts from other, um, Robert E. Howard stories. Like so many of the things that happen in it are... Y'all, y'all seen the original Conan the Barbarian movie? Was it eighty two? Oh yeah, I've seen it a number of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, not since I was like a kid. That's okay. If you saw it as a kid, you you have it deep in your soul. <laughs> so uh, you know, like it was more like other kids were watching. Like I, I don't know. I like I don't okay. have the relationship with it that I want. You you definitely need to go rewatch it and take it in and make it part of your life. Um, so, you know, there's a, I'm just, I just typed in Conan the Barbarian or Jerry Lopez or whatever, and uh, I'm getting images. And so many of the images, like there's an image uh, of a witch in the story, and I think that's from A Witch Shall Be Born. Is that right? Is that where it's lifted from, Alex, you I think? Don't, I don't think that's the witch. Um, she's a little bit more like the witch from Hour of the Dragon. Hour of the Dragon Witch, right. Okay. It's from Witch Shall Be Born is the scene where he's crucified, right? Yeah, that's the crucifixion scene. Right. And then there's the tower scene that is uh, the climbing tower of the tower. The tower of the Elephant. And Valeria is lifted from Red Nails, right? And Thalsa Doom is a cull villain. Right, right. And and notice that those are the ones that we are sort of associating with Conan. But Subutai in the movie is an archer, right? Uh, and he doesn't, and he has a horse in the movie, but uh, he's not primarily a horse guy, but he's an amazing horse archer and he's dressed like a Mongol. And the things that um, happen to Conan in the movie are the things that actually happen to Bybars in real life, right? Turned into a slave, taken to Egypt, turned into a, a warrior, trained up. And so I was like, I was thinking, Whoever is it became a king by his own hand. Yeah, it was it Oliver. Yeah, that's right. Oliver Stone. No, who wrote the Conan movie? Yeah, Oliver Stone. No, John Milius, wasn't it? Oh. I think it's John Milius. Anyways, um, he he's clearly had read all of these 1970s. Um, I'm pretty sure it's John Milius. Basil Polidorus did the music, directed by John right. Milius. 
I I still own the CD for that soundtrack. It's amazing. It's right? written by Oliver Stone helped write it. Okay, yeah. So Oliver uh, John Millius also. Yeah. So these guys they read this stuff and they took it in and said there is no Conan story, right? There is no one Conan story. They didn't adapt a. Uh, they didn't attack right. they kind of Queen of the Black Coast. They took Valeria and turned it into Belit for this scene, and then the Tower of the Elephant. There's no elephant, but there's a Thalsa Doom scene in there, and giant snake in the tower. Right, right. So it's all it's an amalgam of Howard's themes and ideas, and mo- most of it's not even lifted from Conan, or at least some of it's not even lifted from Conan. And so that the Wheel of Pain, right? That's not in Conan. That's that's. Not in any of the stories. That's from um, inference on what's going on with Bybars here. And so I think part of the issue in reading this is we don't know who the hero of our story is, right? Mm. Is it Bybars or is it it's, Red Cajal? It, it, and, and that mode, right, that mode is that we actually, like, I had my mom read this to me. <laughs> um before I heard Connor's reading, and um, she said at one point, she you know she didn't know the story beforehand. She said at one point, "It's a ruse," and I said, "It it's not a ruse." And I and we were at the point in the scene where, in the story where um, our hero has come back from the east, and he's reporting on the horde and this castle uh, full of um, Arabs is. Uh, considering him a threat, and then they, you know, check him out and l- listen to his story, and they don't kill him. And he says, "I'm just going to take a rest seat of my horse." And my mom's like, "This is a ruse," and I'm like, "I don't think so. I think this is the story." And it's because I have the exact same reaction. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is a trick. It is a trick. It is a trick, but it's not the trick. The trick happened earlier. And so, uh, did you did you read it twice, Trish? Because I went back and re- reread it. Um, because I was noticing stuff at the beginning that's at the end that he's actually laying it's it's not a mystery exactly, but we're not supposed to know something that uh I was gonna say Lovecraft that Robert E. Howard has put down in here. I don't think it was a common idea, and it is uh mentioned on the Wikipedia entry basically that um our uh our reveal is a supposition of uh, reality. So, uh, what's the... I'm trying to... I haven't got the right Wikipedia entry page up here. Um, who's who's our um, guy who gets bashed on the head? Struxel. Uh, Haroon gets Haroon. bashed on the head at the right. beginning. Haroon. Um, Haroon is a real person in in real life. Right? History. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and so is okay. by bars. And I think it said Harold Lamb supposed that they are the same person. And so Hmm. uh, Robert E. Howard has taken this and said, yes, and I'm going to make a story out of it. And that's really interesting. And that's why it feels like it doesn't work in the same way that uh, Hawks of Utremer does, where we've got our... Irish lord, right? Um, fleeing uh, uh, despair in in Europe for uh, relief in the East. We've got the same setup, but 
but the reveal here is not um it's not the same it's it's a a historical supposition it's almost like he's making an argument mm. right well also um this story the sowers of thunder you you have you're not quite sure who the protagonist is, although the viewpoint character, at least through the first, for, through the beginning, is Cahal. Mm-hmm. Um, but he rides around for three chapters at least before yep. you get into the main plot hook of the story. Yep. Um, whereas Hawks of Utremere is pretty simply it's, a revenge story, and it and it uh, and bounces from castle to castle exactly. And I think he's trying to he's he's. He's fitting it so closely to, like, I, I watched a couple of documentaries on buy bars, right? And the, all of this stuff didn't happen overnight. <laughs> it wasn't like the horde suddenly appeared on the horizon on the same day. So what's the what's the time frame of this story? We need a map to show us where we're going, but we also need like a uh, a timeline. It's not a couple of days, right? Because mm-hmm. they they go from Egypt to the Palestine, and, and they go off to the east, uh, almost to the Euphrates, right? And then, mm-hmm. uh, although we don't see that, and then they come back, or our hero comes back, and then there's this second meeting, and then there's the meeting in the city, right, uh, during the first invasion, and then there's the subsequent invasion, and it's like, um. It's almost like it it would make a really good movie if you knew it was a historical fiction um, documentary, not documentary, historical fiction, no, yeah, historical movie about by bars. And then you have a Mm. viewpoint character. So if you guys have all seen Kingdom of Heaven, I think that's a really good movie. There's a couple of different versions of it. Um, And it's about... um, you know, it's about the Crusader states and their interactions with with mm-hmm. the communities there, right? Uh, crusades and such, um, fighting amongst themselves and, you know, decadence and all that stuff. It's around the same period, too. Um, but, you know, Bybars has a big life. And in this story, he says, uh, I mean, I thought that part, the reveal was amazing, right? That it, when he explains why um, he was not lying. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I accept it. <laughs> right. He <laughs> says, um, I go to bed. I mean, if you go back and reread it, he says, uh, he was my taskmaster. I was his body servant. Right. I put him to bed. <laughs> 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 I took off his shoes. Right. And, uh, I hate that guy. <laughs> right. And you'll not find me talk about him here. Right. And then when he sees him again with a mustache, um, he says, I don't know who who you're talking about. Haroon is not, I am not Haroon, right? And it's like, oh, well, yeah. Now, if you look at it that way, I think it's a, a really interesting thing that he's done. But it ain't an adventure like, like Hawks of Utremere. Not at all. It feels mm. really impersonal. Very impersonal. Hawks of Utremere is mm-hmm. about the one guy doing, he's going for revenge and it's about him. And this is clearly a bigger story scoped story like it's about an invasion the fall of kingdoms mm-hmm. and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you can't really make that story personal that's right and he, howard he, howard works best at the you know personal level you and can see there's, there's a personal a, uh go ahead 
yeah, there's a there's a personal story here. It's just undercooked, right? Like the mm-hmm. um, the knight who's secretly the woman who betrayed him. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm by bars. Mm-hmm. I'm like three dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's all. And then like I like kill you after I'm dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, a prophecy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of stuff here. It's just I feel like this is uh, something that like. Howard wrote and sent off, but uh, would actually benefit from. Uh, uh, I know we don't say this often, but benefit from being like twice as long. Yeah, <laughs> the Lady Night thing was just so out of nowhere. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it felt very, um, and I, I liked that sort of plot arc, um, but it did feel a bit out of place, um, and I think it. Like uh, part of the issue with this story, if we're going to pick apart why it doesn't work as well as um, Hawks of Outremer, um, is uh, because there's not much of a payoff for any of the characters, right? Mm-hmm. Like Kahal is a you know he's lost his kingdom, but he never regains it, and he never like that's a lot of of his motivation is sort of surrounding that, but nothing ever happens to it. And okay, there's this uh, sort of romance plot as well, um, and it kind of ends in tragedy. But there's similarly not too much of a payoff there. And I don't think by bars we don't get enough. Um, time it almost to needs to be told from his point of view, and it can't be. Yes. <laughs> right. We need to want by bars. I think if he's if he's going to be the main character, we want him to win. But we yeah. sort of don't because he's almost a villain. Um, and then, and Kahal doesn't really succeed. He dies at the end. So there's not too much of a payoff there. And there's nothing that'll happen next Yeah. Um, with him. Uh, so I can see what you're saying, Trish, about this story is uh, it's sort of pulling itself in several different ways. Mm-hmm. And it would benefit from a more direct and um, coherent plot going through the story it's because it, it it's because it's everything that happens in it is historically accurate <laughs> it's actually the, yeah. the, the problem so you know by bars has a scar on his face in real life right well he gets that in this story now we don't know where he actually got it um but he he didn't have it from birth right and he he has like a bad eye later in life when he's he's the sultan or whatever um and he's like involved in many intrigues in his, his life, right? Um, and this is just a, like a, a tiny little snippet of it, and it takes uh, the idea that yeah, he will go amongst the people to spy because he only trusts himself because he's a really good warrior, and that's what made him in real life such a rags to riches story, right? He starts off as a an indentured slave. Um, uh, goes through the schools that you see at the beginning of the Conan movie, right? He's ripped from his home, uh, turned into a... He's a northern barbarian, literally, like blue-eyed, right? Well, pale-skinned. Mm. Um, he goes through this uh, this training. Um, he's got the riding skills. He's got the uh, uh, chopping skills. Apparently, he, like, he had his men um, drill like a thousand uh, sword swings a day, right? That's a lot of sword swinging. Like, 
if you if you do a hundred, that's gonna hurt. If you do a thousand, that's a lot of sword swinging, right? So if, if if we sense the idea that this is maybe true, that he is such a, I mean, it's kind of hard to understate how important Vibars is for for what this period is, and I think that's what's so fascinated Howard. It, and so he shoves in this Irish crusader, right? Um, in order for him, literally, Howard, who th- he thinks of himself as an I- Irishman, I think. I mean, he's an American, right? But whenever he can, he, he shoves an Irish character in it, if it's a historical story. <laughs> because it's him confronting the East, there's this character by bars. He's so important to understanding, you know, why the Mongols were stopped. How did the hordes not take, not get to take over the, you know, the Arab Empire, the uh, Muslim world? Bybars stopped them. And one of the, one of the things that Bybars did that so, uh, like this later on, you know, past this story, is um, he actually he. He took the one of the Crusader states and said, "You're on my team now." And I'm like, "Oh, I want to hear more about this, right?" So they got together and fought against an uh, yet another invasion from the Mongols, and we we have that in this story as well. But like, he 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 besieged the city and says, "Okay, you have a choice: we can kill you or you can join the team." And then he used that uh, that that. Uh, movement to attack more Christian cities later on. It's like, wow! right? So he's like the opposite of Saladin in a certain sense, right? Saladin's um, he's noble. Bybars is cunning, and he's powerful. And how can you stand against him? Well, if we go back to that scene, in the opening scene, even before the, Im- the illustration, right? They grab a, sti- a, a stick, a pole, I don't know, a quarterstaff, and they have a fight to see who can wrest it out of each other, and it breaks. Somebody's probably got mm. that scene marked up. Um, and in that, in that breaking, he says, this is, gonna, this is a very bad thing. This means neither of us will ever be able to dominate the other, right? And then that's part of the prophecy, so that when our hero dies... Um, he is also wounded by bars, giving him that scar on his face, like cull, right? And it's like, oh yeah, so it's it's we it's Howard projecting himself against a historical figure, and and I think a a similar thing happens in uh, Hawks of Ultramare, where yeah. the Irish character is kind of. Uh, Robert's stand in for himself mm-hmm. and he's coming in contact with a famous historical figure. Yep. Saladin. And it's a different yeah. notice that the defeat is a different kind of defeat, right? So in a way, our hero, how do we pronounce his name? Um, Cahal. Cahal, right? Cahal. Um, he, I was saying Cahal, but Cahal might be more it's, I don't know. Uh, in any case, he kind of gets what he wants, right? Um, it, it, he says it twice in the story, it's slightly different both times. His, his kingdom is the moon, the dark side of the moon, right? Um, mm. And he kind of gets what he wants, which is an end to himself. Because all his people are um, dead, 
right? He's the soldiers he led into battle. Um, his he ha- he came here because he couldn't go home, right? Because there was no pl- there was no home. So it's almost like he's he's seeking death. And when when we see that in Hawks of Uchermer, um he's he says you can't defeat me. And he does, right? But he defeats him in a way of graciousness and reasonableness. And uh, I see, I see you as a fellow person. And that's a, a, a terrible defeat for uh, for our hero there. And it's a it's a kind of defeat here, but it's a it's a victor a victorious defeat because he clawed him, right? And also, he mm. got what he wants. So it it is not satisfactory, but it's. I think it's the only way that Howard can engage. And I, I didn't realize this before. Um, um, but it, it's it's it. even more than than the indie ones, though, right? Like we get to hear Bybars talk about how like this man has shown him that like Western civilization will crush Islam. Yes, yes, and, and like it'll take a thousand years. Yeah, it, mm. it, it is. A, see, that's the thing I never realized. Like, uh, I, when we talk with Evan after a show, we talk about Lovecraft a hell of a lot. And the reason is well, one of the things we're talking about, Alex, is uh, the Lovecraft Robert E. Howard letters. I've only read a, like a little bit of them, but uh, they're fascinating. And it seemed to me that Lovecraft never, never was trying to argue for something that he was arguing with Robert E. Howard with in his own stories. He was never affected by Howard. Whereas I thought Howard was highly affected by by Lovecraft, and I still think that's the case in his stories. But here, he's not trying to prove something to Lovecraft, although it's about the same thing that he's always talking to him about, which is, you know, barbar- barbarians um, and the, the decay and... Cr- destruction of societies, right? With barbarians coming in. Barbarianism is the norm, not civilization, right? We see that here. But here, it's also like, I can put myself up against any historical figure by writing a story set in that place. If I get enough details right, and I, I'm me, <laughs> I'm the boxer, I'm this intellectual heavyweight from a small town, Maybe I'm by bars in a certain, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who could take on by bars. And I think that's really mm. interesting. It's, it's such an insight into his psychology that I haven't seen. Um, like Conan feels much more, um, he's trying to, he's trying to make money here. I think, he, you know, obviously he's selling to a market and he was definitely interest, interested in that. But it, it seems like he, the length here is, because of the technical need for it to have uh, time in between. And that's why it feels so like it, there isn't, that's why it feels wrong, even though it's perfectly serviceable on every, every chapter, right? Overall, I think it, it isn't an amazing story as a classic of Robert E. Howard. And yet some of those scenes are just as iconic as any you'd find in, you know, the, the scimitar with the, uh, the scarlet, Scarlet flying, the babies being <laughs> spitted. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The battle scenes are amazing. Well, was the uh, played in the, the bar at the very beginning? Was yeah, really solid. That's really that good. Was, that was a great scene. That's a scene I've seen in many uh, of the Roy Thomas written, you know, Savage Swords, right? Where you've got 
that opening and some baddie that's uh, going to show up later. Um, it is very Robert E. Howard, that opening scene. And it... Yeah, so it doesn't... I don't think it flows in the way that we want it to, but I don't think it could if he's trying to do what he's exactly doing here. I can't see another way to do it. Unless he, you know, mm-hmm. a- abandons the uh, the thesis that an Irish viewpoint character who's me <laughs> can <laughs> go up against this historical, incredibly important, like, we, we, we kind of forget how scary the Mongols were when they hit Eastern Europe. It was like oh, nightmare, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so this is, how is it, the, how is it possible that these, these Mamelukes stopped them? This, the sons of slaves, right? And, and in comparison to the two stories, we've, he was disinherited, um, he was disinherited, Cahal was disinherited before he was born, right? So he's coming from a kingship. And Baibar is starting, starting low, we don't know how low, but definitely low. And, and he raises himself through the ranks, and he, sir, I think he eventually dies of a poisoning, but it wasn't meant for him. There was a lot of, like, um, court intrigue, and, like, he, it, it, you see it in this story, too, where he talks about how, when, when um, what's his name? The, his first identity. His fake identity. Harun. Harun. Harun's uh, talking about Baibars. He talks about how he's, Baibars is not the leader of Egypt, right? Even though people say he is. And they're in Egypt, right? Um, and so how is it, how is, uh, how is he not lying? Well, he's not yet the leader of Egypt. He eventually will be, right? He eventually will be in charge. But at this point in history, he's not. And, and yet, um, all the things that we get info dump dropped in those conversations, as far as I can tell, 100% accurate. Which is very impressive because there, it is very complex. Like all the stuff that happened, like all these king- kingdoms, crusader states, and and uh, the relationship between the Syrians and uh, the Egyptians, and like you know, they're not all like one team. It's not. It's not simple. It's. It's as it's it's almost like uh, imagine Canada trying to you know jump into the middle of the the fight in um, Washington in on December sixth. There is no one side you want to be on on December sixth, January sixth, and say, "Hey guys, what's going on here?" It's not easy to explain, mm. right? It's very dense, and yet I think he does enough work, and that's why it takes so long for us to get up to speed. <laughs> understand who the sides are and wh- why the things that are happening are happening and uh i think to his credit it's relatively um painless like uh some stories mm-hmm. it is the case where when you need to convey a lot of information it can be a bit rough yeah um it takes you out of the story this one it flows pretty nicely oh it flows perfectly where yeah yeah you have this sense of who the players are What's going on? The Mongol threat. There's Arabs and there's Crusaders, um, and they're going to need to band together to try and stop the the common enemy. Um, but uh, that could have uh, been a bit more messy. <laughs> um, oh, the craftsmanship is excellent in the in this as far as just getting the writing done. Um, you can argue that maybe he should have 
cut some of it or I don't know. I don't know on someone else, although that would have been difficult marketing wise, I think, to sell a story <laughs> with an actual, you know, uh, uh, bars as the pro- as the protagonist. I think he's of, doing this for him. Like, like instead of the European inset. <laughs> Yeah, I, I but, think uh, he yeah, could have. Yeah, the, the he could have made it is is as good as ever. It's just that, uh, given the themes and the people that he's chosen to write about, it's necessarily more distant than uh, some of his mm. other stories. Yeah, and uh, it, I think he he's doing it this way because he's doing it for him. He wanted to be as accurate as possible. At least that's the way it's, it seems in the story. Um, it, he's trying to keep it. Like, you could totally take stuff out of here and use it as... I was surprised it wasn't adapted as a Conan story at any point. There are problems with that adaptation, being that Conan wouldn't react the same way in these situations. There are no equals of Conan in a certain sense, right? In the Conan stories, there are competitors, there are gods to fight, there are monsters, but and there are wizards, but there's not like a uh, a kingly figure who is worthy of of uh, him. Uh, like, who's Conan's greatest adversary? People want to say Thulsa Doom. He's not. <laughs> That's mm. not. He's not a Conan character. He's, he's not from that thing. Um, it, it, it's like a, a monkey with a cape or something, right? It's um, his own um, belief in following this, falling under the spell of this woman, right? Um, and he can, he walks out of every adventure sort of saying, ah, well, live to fight another day. It's not a big deal. Lost the money. Uh, but here, this is a doomed character. It's a, it's a femme fatale story, too, right? Mm-hmm. The way he's so bitter at the beginning and, and uh, revealed at the end. Um, it's uncharacteristically Robert E. Howard in that uh, respect. Also, um... Do you do you think at the beginning he actually notices that it's her and then just like just d- can't let himself? We'd have to read the text again. Um, yeah, I, it, it like talks about, I, I read it a second time. Um, I don't have it in front of me, uh, but I read it a second time and it talked about like the feminine eyes of this person and he mm. looks into the visor and it doesn't say like how he feels about it. Yeah, I mean, he, he pulls he, back almost like a woman. <laughs> yeah, and he does uh, kind of recognize Cahal. the uh, the assistant or whatever the who was it the the Dane with her, but he's yeah. not quite sure where he place him. I I don't think he recognizes her, but um, I think like you like you said he uh, he's he seems like he's zoned out a little bit. He looks at this knight, and he's kind of like lost for a sec. He's like, who is this? I kind of recognize this person, but I don't know who. And then he's like, wakes himself up, and he's like, "Oh, okay, how's it going?" Um, and then keeps going. So, so I like, don't hey, think he a, does. There's a giant army coming behind me. We should run. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I got better, I got more important stuff to do right now. <laughs> I'm gonna just read um, that section here. Uh, why to Cairo, Akbar, or Harun, or whatever your name is? Asked Kehal. Because I have business with the great Oaf Bybars, whom the devil may fly away with. Yelled Akbar. And his shout of laughter floated back above the hoofbeats. It was hours later when Cahal, pushing his horse as hard as he dared, met the travelers, a slender knight in full mail and visored helmet, with a single attendant, a big Carl, with rough beard, a rough red beard, who wore a horned helmet and a shirt of scale mail and wore a heavy axe. This is uh, an azir or a veneer, I guess. <laughs> um, something slumbering stirred in Cahal. There we go. 
as he looked at that mm. fierce bluff face and reined in. Man, where have I seen you before? The fierce frosty eyes met him levelly. By Odin, I can't say. I'm Wolfgar, the Dane, and this is my master. Cahal glanced at the silent knight with his plain shield. Through the bars of the visor, shadowed eyes looked at him. Great God, a shock went through Cahal, leaving him bewildered and shaken with a thousand racing chaotic thoughts. Clearly, he subconsciously recognized her. He leaned forward, striving to peer through the lowered visor, and the knight drew back with an almost womanish gesture of rebuke. Cahal reddened. See? It is, you're right. Mm. Definitely recognized. But only on the subconscious level, right? Or mm-hmm. he's gay. <laughs> that's, the, that's the other option. Um, no, I, I think, I think that I, I, I was, I was, I was honestly distracted by the, uh, Odin swearing assistant. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was right. Like I, I was like, this is actually Robert E. Howard's red herring is so good. Literally a red haired guy. Right. Um, <laughs> was so good. I I didn't see this as like a big deal. I just moved on with the story. And uh and so yeah, the the ending works for me. Um I, but again, I I understand why this is not the classic of Robert E. Howard stories. And it's because it's so grounded in the history. I I can't figure out a way for, like, if he wants to do it this way with the reveal and the supposition that he's trying to sort of support, I can't see, think of an, another way to do this unless the main character was, like, stupid and he was hanging out with Bybars the whole time and didn't notice him, you know, changing costumes and putting on fake mustaches or growing, I guess it's growing mustaches, right, mustachios. What What's the... um. Connor, you you read this uh, for us, mm-hmm. so you, presumably you know it a little better um, than I do. Do you know it's a lot of work that that job, and I appreciate it. Um, what do you think the time period is here? Because um, we do I get a year a story. Um, yeah, I looked it up, and it's about the uh, like one thousand two hundred. Um, it's like twelve fifty four, I think it's called out or something like that. But but I, I'm just saying twelve forty four. Twelve forty four. The the battle of La Forbi, which I think is mm-hmm. the final battle in the story, is definitely twelve forty four. Right. Um, do we get a so do we get an then. an earlier period? Like, what is this a year or is this six months? Uh, well, the hmm, I think it's probably about the story begins and then takes place over about six months, I would have said. Time to grow a mustache. Yeah, time to grow a mustache, but also you have to go off to the... I mean, traveling... uh, One of the things we learned at the beginning is he wants to go to Jerusalem or something, right? And he can't get a ship. Um, Right, so he goes by horse and whatever. And that's not a two-day trip, right? From from Cairo to... uh, Damietta. Right, Damietta to to, um, Jerusalem. And then he goes wandering out in the hills, and then he decides with the bandit to go far to the east. Right. So yeah, we're talking a significant amount of time. Yeah, no, it's at least, I think, six months. And, at least. And, and uh, the chapters sort of do that as 
Maybe that's why I'm thinking it's six months. Because um, uh, is there like six chapters? Seven chapters? Okay. About that, yeah. Yeah, seven chapters it looks like. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so I feel, yeah. I feel like... Um, How do you do? How do you t- tell the story if you're trying to be accurate? You'd have to have that lead time. It it can't be like uh, one night uh, th- when the zombies all come out. You know, <laughs> like mm. when you're telling a story that is, or like Die Hard when it takes place over eight hours or twelve hours or whatever it's supposed to be, right? Um, when you're telling a story like that, you can have a certain connection. But I I, I was surprised when. Um, Rune suddenly disappeared from the story. I was like, oh, these guys are going to hang out, right? They're going to go off and have adventures together, and they don't. And that's what threw me, mm-hmm. right? Because I thought that, that they're going to, they're going to, I've seen it in other uh, Robert E. Howard stories. They team up, right? It's, uh, <laughs> that's literally what they, they have those Marvel comics where it's a team up issue, right? You see uh, Punisher and Spider-Man get together to fight some somebody else. Right, or those were... Green Lantern, Green Hornet, or no, <laughs> Green Hornet. Green Lantern, Green Arrow, right? The team-ups. And then they go off and have an adventure. But oh, literally... No, no. They, they wouldn't have team-ups between DC and Marvel. <laughs> no, no, Green, Green Lantern and Green Arrow are, are the same. They're both DC. Ask me how I know. <laughs> Will should know this, too. All right. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's a famous one, Hard Traveling Heroes. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the, um, the team-up is what I was expecting, because we've got these two titans, right? And they are testing each other against each other, and eventually they come back together, um, and it's resolved. They team up for one battle. They team up for one battle, but you can't have that reveal, and that double reveal of the, of the Masked Knight Unless uh, you, I, see, I, 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 I don't know how to fix this story to make it more fun. <laughs> I think it's being strangled by the concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the concept. So uh, I think, Will, the thesis. you said that you would make this story longer. Is that what you said? Yeah, well, I, I think that, like, how I... I imagine you could turn this into like a modern fantasy novel or a modern mm. historical fantasy novel, or uh, you know, it doesn't solve a lot of problems by make making fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, I feel like you could make this it, like uh, you know, like uh, like a novel length story, and then you just spend more time with each of the characters. Because I'm, you know, I'm very fascinated in this woman who like betrayed him and then decided to like impersonate a man and go to the Holy Land chasing mm-hmm. him. Right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's a fascinating person. It is uh, that. Tell it from her point of view. I, I don't know what it would do to the story, but it wouldn't be what Robert E. Howard is, is capable of. I I, he does tell stories from the point of view of women, but it's very seldom. Or yeah, over yeah. their and, shoulder, anyways. Yeah, so, so, but, uh, I mean, I really liked the, I really liked this story. Um, I've been watching the TV show Vikings a lot, so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is like, I'm like in the right mode for this. Yeah, totally. This is just like, go back in time, cut people up, this is great. Um uh, and that, like that's the main thing going on here is like we're going back in time and like people are getting cut right. up. That, uh, that, that's but, that scene where they he breaks the table leg off and and just like says let's have a hitting contest. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I was I I would have said that's a bit weird, but I just watched um, 
a uh, Christopher Lee movie where it's pirates are yeah pirates uh, from the invasion of England what, what the Spanish main what the Armada Spanish Armada the Spanish Armada it's, I can't remember the name of the movie but um, he he's a pirate and they actually have one of those contests in, when they go into the bar and they they're about to fight with swords and then they have no like it's a it's a punching contest you stand on one side of the line and you give me your best shot. <laughs> Like I haven't been in a lot of bar fights myself, zero in fact. Um, but honestly, I think that, that might be more realistic than I thought when I first read this story because that was that was like, oh, maybe maybe that is the way you deal with it <laughs> when you want to. You literally go to the bar to get in a fight. People do that, right? Testing themselves and they're angry mm. about stuff. I mean, if you're PTSD in those days. Just go around hitting things. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, what else? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that 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 opening uh, where they actually fight and then they fight again and then drink each other the drink each other under the table thing with the the milk of um, fermented milk, right? That's um, it's yeah, kind of realistic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's probably a reason it's not available at your local bar, probably. I think I, I think I might have interrupted uh, Will though. Sorry. No, no, no. But like you're you're reminding me that Bybars is also a character that like I feel like that I don't understand him any better having read this story. Right? Like who's yeah. this dude no. who's like I've got I've got different like I've got different personas that I put on just to live my life. Like you know, there, there's. So, like, people are putting on different personas to live their lives mm-hmm. in the story, and, like, we, we don't get, like, it, I mean, it, it's it's shocking, it's amazing, and, like, why are they doing it? Mm. That's a interesting point, because we do have a lot of disguises uh, in this story. Like, there's Eleanor, and mm-hmm. then there's also Bypass. Um I think uh, um, the start of the story if i was going to make this or try and fix this story i think the way to do it like will you said would be to it would be either to make it shorter or would be to make it longer um if you had to make it shorter i think you would have to take out the whole eleanor plot arc if Mm. you made it longer i think you would have to make it almost episodic because i think that first chunk when they're in the bar with harun is a nice little chunk and then you kind of get another chunk which is when he's talking to um sir renault de iblin and then you sort of get the um is it a uh, ahmed is his next is Baibar's next akbar? persona akbar um akbar that's it yeah um and then um uh after that you kind of get the um you get the final big sort of battle and i think they almost would work as if you stretched them out a bit and made them into more of like a start, middle and end, you could almost have those as like episodes. Yeah. Um, or, and I think that would make sense. Cause I think the Eleanor story works. Maybe add, yeah, thing. maybe add in something in the middle that it, like they do go yeah. off an adventure and then have his, his new companion killed. Right. Uh, by the, uh, yeah. by the, it, see that's off screen in here, isn't it? Um, so, uh, um, yeah, uh, well, I think it, 
I was, I was just going to say, it would be a very uncharacteristic thing of Robert E. Howard to do. But one thing that would make the story a lot better and would make Bybars a more um, empathetic character who we like and understand would be to see something from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Like Robert E. Howard doesn't really do that. He tends to, it seems like he just has one character in a story. He Have doesn't switch perspectives. by Megan Whalen Turner? Uh, no. So it's a first-person novel, and mm. the narrator is kind of the star of the book, but he's pulling the wool over your eyes the whole time. Nice. So he never actually lies, but everything he says is only sort of technically true. Mm. And at the end, there's Under a big a reveal lie. of like who the main Sounds character great. actually is, even though it's all in first person. So mm. I would love to see this. You could have different perspective characters, but they're all by bars, but you don't find out until the end. Who's the author of that book? Really and this cool. is his adventure. And then, you know, you hand it off, and then here's Akbar, and this is his it. adventure. And you kind of like hand off from character to character, and at the end, you're like, actually, it was the same guy all the time. That would be a really unique idea for a series of stories. Um, yeah, I think that would work really well. Uh, apparently, that's a and series we, book. The King of Atolia? Is that? Yep, Megan, Megan Whalen Turner. I've never heard of it. Sounds great. Um, uh, they are they are very good. I like that. Um, I I was uh, I was really interested, and you know, it is part of his his other thesis. Other than I think you know, like he's um, <laughs> he's um, he's saying, "What could I beat by bars in a fight?" <laughs> and the answer is, it would be a tie, kind of. <laughs> Although technically, he he would have to live on after I beat him. <laughs> Um, but I would be his equal. I would be his match, right? And I'm not, I, I know I'm projecting uh, what Howard would be. He wouldn't say that, right? That's just me sort of overstating the case. But um, I was really interested in the sort of the subthesis, which we also see in in uh, Hawks of Outremer. Um Here we see this is like 100 years later or so, right, in the chronology of uh, history, from Hawks of Utremer. And um, so the Crusader states are in decline in this one. Um, and so I'm going to just read, this is uh, page 87 in the text I've got from the original magazine. And then um, it goes right into chapter two. Um, Through budding spring, hot summer, and dreamy autumn. So we've got three months, you know, six months there, something like that. Red Cahal Road, following a blind pilgrimage that led even beyond Jerusalem and whose goal he could not see or guess. Ascalon he ter- in a- Ascalon he tarried in. Tyre, Yaffa, Acre. He was a visitor at the castles of the military orders. So those would be the um, hospitalers and um, templars, right? Um, uh, where is it? Military. And the Teutonic course. Knights are mentioned as well. Right, the Teutonic Knights. Uh, and th- there's some amazing crusades in the East uh, that are in history that are fascinating. I wonder if Howard ever talked about those. You know, like they, the Teutonic Knights invaded like Russia. Like <laughs> weird, right? It's, mm. it's like that's and, a crusade. Uh, yeah, it was, and and Poland especially as well. Yeah. Um, and even though, yeah, to sort of spread Christianity and to sort of stamp out paganism. Sort of. Uh, but it's kind of like if you see how Bybars does his stuff, like in subsequent reality, right? He does the same sort of thing. It's to stabilize his his rule, 
It's to, you know, pay off his guys and get everything organized so that he can, you know, not die. Because once you're in, in the system, you sort of have to keep the Mongols out and you have to, right, stable. So it, it becomes a whole thing. Anyways, I'm going to just keep reading here. Walter de Brienne offered him a part in the rule of the fading kingdom, but Cahal shook his head and rode on. So he doesn't want to be in charge of a kingdom, right? That, even though that's what he wanted earlier in his life. The throne he had never pressed had been snatched beyond his reach, and no other earthly glory would suffice. He's kind of suicidal here. And so in the budding dream of a new spring, he came to the castle. So this is a year, at least, right? Um, he came to the new castle of Renault de Ebelin, beyond the frontier. And then the description of this thing is amazing. The so, the seer, so senior, I guess, Renault has, was cousin of the powerful crusading family of de Ebelin, which held its grip, by the way, Connor, I'm sorry I made you mm-hmm. read this because it's full of difficult pronunciations. <laughs> like, Haroon is yeah. hard enough. Dude, sorry about that. You must have spent weeks trying Gaelic, to... Haroon is cool. easy to say. <laughs> uh, well, it's relatively easy, but that's a... You know, like, uh, Acre is even... You know, if you don't know how to pronounce... I think it's Acre, right? I mm. thought it was Acre. It could be. It could be. Um... <laughs> Uh, okay, anyways, but little of the fruits of conquest had fallen. A wanderer and an adventurer living by his wits and the edge of his sword. He had gotten more hard blows than gold. He was a tall, lean man with hawk eyes and a predatory nose. I love so Howard. His mail was worn, his velvet cloak shabby and torn, and the gems long gone from the hilt of his sword and dagger. And the knight's hold was a haunt of poverty, the dry moat which encircled the castle, was filled up in many places. The outer walls were mere heaps of crumbled stone. Weeds grew rank in the courtyard and over the filled-up well. The chambers of the castle were dusty and bare, and the great desert spiders spun their webs on the cold stones. Lizards scampered across the broken flags, and the tramp of mailed feet resounded eerily in the echoing emptiness. No merry villagers bearing grain and wine thronged the barren courts, and no gaily clad pages sang among the dusty corridors. For over half a century the keep had stood deserted, until Dibelin had been had ridden across to Jordan to make it a reaver's hold. Um, and reavers are, you know, not what you want to be when you're a lord. Uh, for Sir mm. Renault, in that stress of poverty, had become no more than a bandit thief raiding the caravans of the Muslims. That is part of the thesis that he's always going for, is like this this r- rise and decline, right? Um, and how does a, a noble house that's gained a, a foothold and a, a seniorage um, go down? Apparently it just takes time. Right, and that's it, it, mm. uh, it, it is really strikingly, interestingly, he, why he's so arguing so hard with Lovecraft about you know this the decline of civilizations and and the fall of civilizations. He's fascinated with it. Really interesting. Uh, so I, I found this story really interesting, um, but it wasn't the rousing adventure that you know Jewels of Guler was. It was uh, which is it's fun. And also interesting. This is more interesting and has really good descriptions, but it isn't. It isn't the classic Robert E. Howard Conan adventure story. And I, th- I think it would make maybe maybe a good TV show, 
like a mini series because you could do it episodically, and that mm. meeting that we ha- we have early on could um, could you know be visually striking enough so that when we see the dream sequence of him thinking about his his the femme fatale who betrayed him right um, later on that that would pay off amazingly. So yeah, it's almost like it is too short for what it's it's trying to do. You know how TV shows tend to make things way too long. This just adding <laughs> a little bit of length to this would maybe make it way better and more resonant. Mm. Because I didn't feel like I was totally with our hero until I thought about how how he had to he had to do so much info dumping, <laughs> and and it, it was not unskillfully done. It was totally skillfully done. And I didn't feel like I was being spoon fed it. But in order to, you know, not be a novel length, I I'm, I don't think, you know, Howard, did he write one novel? The Hour of the Dragon is basically it. And that's not even very long, right? Yeah, I think that was his only full length novel. It's not even, it's, it's, it's a short novel too. It's not like eight, eight hours. Mm-hmm. It's like four. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty episodic. Like each chapter is, Pretty yeah, much a standard story. So it, that was not an option for him, right? Uh, you know, there wasn't a market that was going to buy a novel from him. So, yeah, I, I find yeah. it fascinating. Rather than, uh, yes. rather than, uh, like the, the the other one is basically it is what you promised. It's 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 got the downer ending. Uh, I'm talking about Hawks of Hutchmere, which is what I'm comparing it to because they're so similar in setting. Um, and and the hero too, right? It's, it's the same setup, right? He's he's sad because yeah. his brother is dead, and um, and his kingdom was invaded by the English or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's a, he's a master on the battlefield, and then when the battles come and he's great, um, he has the rug pulled out from under him by a gracious enemy. Mm. And Bybars is is a devious enemy. And a powerful thinker or strategist, I guess, is the way to put it. Um, and so the story, I think, leans incredibly heavily on that romance, right? Which uh, yeah. maybe we didn't get enough of at the beginning. Because, I mean, he's it's just talking to a guy at a bar, right? Yeah. And he, he talks to um, Renault de Iblin as well about A little bit, it. yeah. Um, but, I've heard uh, the stories about you. Tell me yeah. if they're true. Yeah. But I don't think we get enough of um, Eleanor. Basically, it's like, oh, she betrayed him at the start. And then later, it's like, well, she's actually not that bad. Um, so, uh, but there's, um, yeah, we don't know much about her or uh, what she's like for there to be much of an emotional payoff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to see. How he could have worked in a scene from her viewpoint, though, without just utterly departing from uh, that's, the story. That's the amazing thing about the different media, right? So, in a TV show, you can do techniques that don't give away stuff um, that you would t- totally be giving away if you're doing it as a novel, right? Um, and and in plays, it's the same. It's the same thing, like. You know what? What Shakespeare does on stage is so. F- what you can't do, like it's there is no thought, 
right? Everybody just talks and says. And the stage directions are built into the dialogue, right? It's such a different medium that you can't transform it in the same way. But like thinking about audio drama, if you could do this as an audio drama, I think it might work incredibly well. Um, but you need a narrator to sort of drop in the um, the description of battle scenes a little bit, but more importantly, yeah. you need to you need to drop in a, a sort of like an infographic, like you get at the beginning of Star Wars, you know, <laughs> not an infographic, mm. but it's a, a crawl, a text crawl. And I'm not a big fan of those, but um, in order to to it's it, it's actually set up a lot like a mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, except it's more like uh, a Ra- not Raymond a Dashiell Hammett style, like shoot 'em up mystery, right? Um, there's a gang, and uh, they're doing this, and then the the solving the not the murder, but the the who's going to do it <laughs> um, from from a point of view of a detective who's, uh, you know, out of his element, it's, it's very right, tough. The kind of detective who goes around and gets beat up and that's how he figures yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Who's, exactly. Who's beating him up. <laughs> right. And so uh, I, I can't think of any way someone else could have handled this material better. Unless you take away the idea that we're following a, a non, uh, a fictional figure. Uh, who's experiencing this, and we're sort of seeing it indirectly through him. That's the only way. I, uh, it, otherwise, it, it just becomes a recitation of facts. Mm-hmm. And that's not a story. And that's not an adventure that you can... I mean, maybe this is why Oriental Stories ultimately is a failure. Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but I can't, I can't imagine all the other stories in it are... are um, Is it Oriental Stories not have any Arabian Nights style stuff in it? Alex, do you know? Um, I don't think it does. Because so, they weren't focusing on the magic. That would have been more of a weird thing. Right, place. right. Shanghai. So Shadow can, of the Vulture was in Oriental Stories. That was Howard at the Siege of Vienna. Cool. The Red Sun. Oh. That sounds awesome. And there's a. But that one works really well because it's, it's about the Siege of Vienna, but it's more personal. It's about. A knight whose name I think is God. Oh, that's magic magic um, carpet. It was in, oh, which is that? yeah, this follow up. Um, just <laughs> it's on my website. Twenty eight pages. Hey Connor, that's the same length as this one. <laughs> that actually sounds like um, cause I'm only like vaguely familiar with the siege of Vienna, but um, that's uh, basically the um, Turks are coming out from the south and trying to take over Europe, yep. and then the European states kind of form of a bit of an alliance and meet them at Vienna. Is that yep. correct? Yep. Yeah, that sounds like a really awesome idea for a story. I'm going to read that. Fantastic story. That one works really well um, mm. because there's a, there's a revenge arc. So the, the main, like the point of view character is a German knight, but the actual main character of the story is Red Sonia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Polish woman. I think I read part sister, of this. Whose sister is a real historical person. That's she right. She was the first concubine of the sultan of constantinople ah. and she and basically sonia is really mad about it she's like that bitch betrayed the whole family <laughs> all of europe and she's just mad about it and she cuts herself a swath through the 
Turkish army to get to her. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so that would have been subsequent to this. This is 34. I'm just going to read the editorial introduction. Uh, a stirring tale of Suleiman the Magnificent. Again, another historical figure. Uh, Howard's going to pit himself against, except this time with a woman. Sultan of Turkey and a red-headed wanton who held the fate of Europe in the hands of uh, as Turkish guns pounded Vienna. So also set uh, down the road in history, right? Yeah. Interesting. And yet we still have a list. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say, is the main character a woman? She, no. The point, she's not the point of view character, but she's she's the one everyone remembers. The guy is kind of a generic Howard guy. Ah, uh, okay, fine, yep. But she's she's the driving force of the story. Okay. Yeah, she's the one who wants um, something. Yeah. Uh, she's see, also a, a Howard woman who never needs to be rescued. She rescues Godfrey like three or four times. Ah, uh, he, awesome. he never saves her once. The language, I'm just looking, scrolling through it, and the language is very similar. Um, you know, uh, that's, the, that's the astonishing thing. When my mom was reading this to me uh, over three days during this week, um, I was, like, asking her for spelling on things because I'm listening to it. And I've done this for so long, I don't usually have more than one or two things per story. I had, like, maybe eight or 12 of them in this story. And, and it's because there was, like, just things that he had to look up that I've never looked up in my whole life. Like one of them was a, what the Jews were wearing in the street and the Syrians were wearing um, the names of the different uh, Irish guards um, that are mentioned. Like he's just dropping vocab word after vocab word in here. And I like, I teach vocab. So my vocab's really good. I mean, it's not maybe the most amazing on the planet, but it's pretty Right. And, and I'm like, wow, this guy's young. Right. And he, he looked up all this stuff and then he incorporated. Right. I was um, reading. Uh, I know whether you're familiar with um, Doc Valley Destiny. Yeah, that's uh, um, a biography of him by his ex-girlfriend. By, um, uh, no, no, that's not the one. This one's um, you're thinking of novel and pride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one who walked with one. something. Yeah, that that's her memoirs. But this one is um, by I think it's Lynn Carter and uh-huh. uh, DeCamp. Right. Um, I think it's by several people. But uh, it and it was the first biography um, of Howard. And I think it's um, they do speculate a lot, but there's a lot of also good facts. And one thing they kind of just brushed by that surprised me was apparently Robert uh, Howard had a photographic memory have wow. you ever heard that before no but um i wouldn't i mean i think we can sort of also get um tied up in knots as to what that literally means because it's not photographic mm. right um but there are there are some weird people out there who have an inability to not remember things like dates of purchases and and uh people's birthdays who they met once right so um, who's the – maybe Alex can help me here. Or I think Will's too young. Maybe uh, maybe uh, Trish can remember. Who, who's the girl from Taxi, the redhead, the TV show? Mary Lou Henner? Oh, I know who you mean. I think um, it's Mary Lou Henner. Was her character named Elaine? I don't, uh, know, I don't know the name of the character, but I, I believe I remember reading about her having one of these photographic memories, and it was not a good thing. 
for her. Mm. You know, like <laughs> you'd think, oh, that's great for actors, right? They can remember the script. Yeah, she has to remember all the scripts she ever read, right? <laughs> Even the bad ones. And and you know, I'm really good at remembering weird little details about things I'm interested in, but that's not the same as as remembering a photographic having a photographic memory. But I wouldn't doubt that he had some sort of major facility there because his his command of of writing is so incredible at such a young age. It's mm. almost uncanny, right? Because what age did he die? 30? 30? 33? 30? I mean, he wasn't... I, he was really young. He was very young, right? 1906 to 1936. Yeah, so he was 30. 30. Right? Um, I mean, I was a smartass when I was 30. <laughs> I was a smartass when I'm 20. Um, but uh, that's kind of a... It's kind of difficult. And... Honestly, you see it so much in his stories. His his being towards death, um, uh, you know, you can see it coming. I, and what's so funny, I wanted to talk to, uh, I don't know how close to the end of the show is we are, but uh, I wanted to talk to y'all <laughs> about my friend Bill Holweg, who almost nobody's ever heard of, but um, he's an important figure for me uh, because we were really good friends and I, I admired what he did. Um, he was an audio dramatist, and he was super passionate. He's from Texas. Huge Robert E. Howard fan. I, I got to tell Will all about him because he's also really big into Edgar Rice Burroughs and all sorts of things Will's really into. And uh, he killed himself um, and in, in a sort of sudden, very uh, unexpected move, suddenly, right? Um, and I think part of the attraction... Uh, for Robert E. Howard to Bill was these feelings of, you know, being towards death, which a lot of people are. <laughs> um, mm. And uh, I could feel it a little bit in here, but um, some stories it's much stronger. Um, but I, I felt it a little bit in here with our, with our, our um, sad Irishman. Mm. Right? What he's there cool. for. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's surprising it's not more so in the stories that feature um, Irish characters because I know um, one thing I've like or uh, I've read after like researching Robert E. Howard's life was that he had this uh, theory of um, mm-hmm. sort of like racial memory. Oh yeah, or um, mm-hmm. yeah, where there was events in your ancestors' past. Impacting on you. That's, uh, he present. wrote about it extensively, right? So many of his stories are about ah. that. Yes, yeah. A lot of race, race yes. memory. Yep. Yeah. He has one story where there's a regular guy in Monday who becomes Conan because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, his ancestor was Conan and Conan comes out of him, I suppose. Um, yeah. It's, it's but, sort of uh, a feature of the time, too. You know, Jack London was did that as well. Um, so people yeah. were thinking a lot about it, but he definitely ran with it in a way that. Yeah. But the the Jack London version of it is less like I'm like a Celtic person, and so like I have like facility with language, right? Like that's something that's in the story. He mm. has the Celts facility mm-hmm. with language. It's like right. I Robert E. Howard, <laughs> a Celtic person. Like you know, we're going to put an asterisk next to that. I haven't seen his family tree. Um, 
but uh, like I, Robert E. Howard, I'm good with language. So this character, who's me, and it's for racial reasons. Yep. Mm. And, right, and like, and also, like Jack London's more like, I mean, uh, before Adam, right? It's his like caveman story. Yeah. It's like, like it's like a different sort of racial memory kind well, of. Well, um, more of just a framing device. Well, just remember, um, my favorite novel of his. I haven't read them all, but his main big famous thing that made him famous is deeply about race memory and that's uh, the call of the wild no it's a dog <laughs> but there is a there is a scene where the dog stares into the fire and he sees himself as a wolf and he goes back about the celts as a race we're talking about the celts i get it i get it like people or dogs as like like a race right well i'm just saying if you follow the journey of the call of the wild it is about reverting to type right reverting to the ancestor and becoming Mm -hmm. one's ancestors and that's why it is such a powerful like it it was the definitive word in a certain sense and sort of defined genres, but he was working with an idea there too. And uh, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but I believe the other one, uh, what's the companion one? Uh, White, White Fang. White Fang is a reversal. Oh, you, should, you should definitely give that a read. I hear you it's almost as good. So I'm looking forward to it. I think I should do that. Uh, what's that sea one? The sea wolf first, because I've heard. I think I need to get Evan on for that because he's a sea guy. And that one is a very, very different book yeah. from both. I'm sort of savoring them because he's so good. Jack London's like one of the best writers ever. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of savoring the... Uh, maybe I'm going to only live 20, 30 more years. I can't... I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't um, <laughs> 100% guarantee. Read a bowl at once. Right. On the other hand, you could get hit by a bus when we... Yeah, but I won't notice that. You know, I'll just say, as I'm friend. flying across the street, I should have read The Seawolf! <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. Nope. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want to put them on the schedule, but oh, we have to s- space them out a, f- uh, a few years apart. By the way, uh, the actress you were thinking of is Marilou Henner. Mm-hmm. I have she a photographic played... memory. It's just a very slow one. <laughs> <laughs> she played Elaine Nardo on Taxi. Yeah. Uh, so I believe the actress has a uh, one of these eidetic. Ide- is that the word for it? Yeah. What? Yep. See, That's I what got a eidetic memory for eidetic memory. <laughs> if something's interesting, then I'll remember it. If it's not interesting, I won't. Remember. Like the main character here, I forgot his name already. That's not the important part. It's Robert E. Howard. By bars, I'm not going to forget that because <laughs> he's a real dude. So yeah, um, I I thought it was really worthwhile. It was worth reading. Yeah. Um, like uh, like almost anything that I think Robert wrote, it's worth. I reading. think that's right. It's not at least once. I think that's I think that's right, you, and you have to treat them like they're expensive bonbons or whatever, right? Because it, I, I hear about people doing, you know, they pick up that <laughs> that Robert E. Howard collection, read every Conan story back to back, like, no, don't do it that way. Slow down. Mm. So read some Jack London in between, and some Herman Melville in between, and some <laughs> Paul Anderson, something else. You can't only have have it hit straight. That's you gotta take some time 
I mean, mm. I read through that shelf of Robert E. Howard that I have pretty much straight through. Did you zip through the whole thing and maybe you have an, uh, the opposite of an eidetic memory and you, you can enjoy them again. But me, I, I feel like when I'm going to watch something like I recently finished rewatching Deep Space Nine. I realized I must have missed some of the last season episodes because I started watching them like, I haven't seen this one before. I'm pretty sure I haven't. I haven't seen this one before. And then there's the, not, the next one. I'm like, oh, I've seen this one. Right? But it's like, oh, yeah, I remember these beats so well that um, it's the only thing that's really changed between my original viewing of the show and now is that I've read more and I've seen more movies and stuff since then. But that's all well, 1995 or so to, to uh, 2021. That's a long period of time, so I couldn't, like, my friend Misa, I think, is re-watching it. Every, she re-watches it a lot. I can't do that. I just know it too well. So when you, when you re-read for this week, I assume you re-read, uh, Alex. <laughs> I, had, I had never actually read this one. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it's not in any of those books you showed on your it's shelf. It's not in any of those books. Damn. It has a collection of, uh, like, Crusader stories, I think. There's one put together. Yeah. The, 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 I've seen that so there's a couple of uh, Sowers of Thunder volumes from the 70s but they're pretty hard to find um, I have um, I managed to find recently the paperback of uh, the Swords of Shahrazar yeah I have that yeah. uh, volume it, it, it has um, it has that one and a few others but it doesn't have Swords of Thunder or mm. um, Hawks of Ultramar in it uh, but that's the only one that I've seen that actually deals with those like crusader stories mm-hmm. have uh, any of you read skull face because that's the one i'm really interested yes, in I have. And what do you think of skull face no. skull face is kind of a fascinating i'm sending it to the group here yeah it's it might be the most racist thing howard yay ever. i mean <laughs> um, but it's clearly howard playing in someone else's sandbox yeah he's doing he's like He's doing, uh, it's Yellow Peril. Fu Manchu. It takes the cover of this uh, reprint in Famous Fantastic Mysteries. Um, It's awesome. Uh, uh, Awesome looking, that is. It's a detective story, isn't it? I don't know. Sort of? Sort of, kind of a detective story. Like, it starts out as a detective story. Like, there's there's a guy, there's a conspiracy, it's a criminal gang, he runs an opium den in London. Yay. And he's trying to subvert something. And you're like, okay, detective story. So quote from Omar Khayyam in every chapter heading. Awesome. But it goes off mm. like, real fast. <laughs> it, it, it ends up... Um, Oof, it's like, big. 46 pages. By the end, like the actual... The guy's an Atlantean priest who was <laughs> lost at the bottom of the sea in a coffin. And the sarcophagus floated to the surface and was picked up by, I think, some Hey, Arabs this is awesome. And, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I was, I wasn't sold, and now I am. Yeah. I'm no, it's... just amazed that this has Robert E. Howard's Theodore Sturgeon's Killdozer, Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Homecoming. Famous Fantastic <laughs> Mysteries is amazing. Trish, if you want to start a podcast called Famous Fantastic Mystery Podcast, I will make the cover art for you <laughs> because it's it it is an awesome reprint magazine. It, Virgil Finlay art, Hans Bach. Hannes mm. Hannes Bach. Virgil Finley is amazing, dude. Artist. He, I think He's this is Virgil. Good in this one. Yeah, it's Virgil <laughs> Finlay interiors. Is he did did he do the cover? It's kind of his art. His 
cover art is sometimes hard to identify, as opposed to in- his interiors are always easy. I can't. No, it, it's probably Lawrence. On, yeah, co- covered by Lawrence, who's also good, but not in the same way. I really like Hans Bach too, but Hannes Hannes Bach. I don't know. In any case, um, oh, it's in Weird Tales. I should be able to get the original together. But it's a bit long, Connor. <laughs> I actually have a paperback of it. I've okay. Never, I don't think I've made it the whole way through. But, um, yeah, that and, um, uh, yeah. Um, I also have one of a uh, story called Al Murek, which I haven't read. Uh, it's, it's, it's yeah so that one I think romance, romance. do we agree mm. that there's something wrong about the ending of that one well, he didn't have an ending for it he yeah died before it is uh, it is public domain in Canada and Australia from Weird Tales May, June, July, August 1939 79 pages baby steps Connor do a shorter one between mm. 80 pages do the do the we 40 page have- one Wait, Connor needs to do the one that is about the the Polish lady. Yeah, do the uh, oh yeah, uh, shadow, yeah, yeah. Connor I'm, needs to do Shadows of the Vulture. I'm king for that one. Of the so we we got lots of work for you. That's <laughs> an awesome. I mean, I already Connor, know the I, history. I, yep, I will happily come back and talk about Shadows of the Vulture. It's only now. 28 pages. There you go. It's the same length yeah. as the one we did today. Cool. Oh, sorry. What, what were you saying, Will? Oh yeah. Uh, so the, the the doomed Celt stuff has got me thinking. Um, have you um, have you read much Lee Brackett or at all uh, any Lee Brackett? No, none at all. Uh, so. She's like, uh, you know, she's like somebody who's like read a lot of these. She like read a lot of these authors and like has her own like doomed Celt ideology. But it like it's interesting. It comes up in like space fantasy stories. She's got this like one that's in planet stories called outpost on IO. Mm-hmm. And it's just like about this, like grim faced Celt man. Who's like, you know, <laughs> like to get the aliens together to like overthrow the other aliens. It's only 13 um, pages. Yeah, no, it's a really good one. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, anyway, it's just like, like there's this, uh, I'm just interested in this doomed Celt ideology, like where we can, <laughs> where we can see it. Cause you know, I, we're talking about deep space nine, right? Uh-huh. It's not like chief O'Brien, right? There you go. <laughs> He's like not super doomed. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's he likes kind of being doomed though. No, you're right. Actually, I take it back because like he's gloomy. Like stuff happens to him. Like I'm gonna like go into like the virtual reality prison for forty years uh, <laughs> over the next second, right? Like that's like the kind of thing that happens. Well, there's one episode. There's one episode where he literally is a robot for the whole episode, and then he finds out at the very end, oh, I'm a robot, and it's a ripoff of a Philip K. Dick story called Imposter. And it's like, oh, I, I hadn't read Imposter when I, I read, uh, I saw it the first time. So I didn't know that it was a ripoff of Imposter. But I love it now <laughs> because it's such a perfect, it's be- way better than the theatrical film version of Imposter, which sucks. With Gary Sinise. Oh, man, that movie sucks so bad. And they, they did a sh- it wasn't intended to be a full-length film. It was intended to be a triptych. And then they didn't get funding for the other two. So they just decided to put a giant chase sequence with Ice Cube in the middle. <laughs> and so it's a 30-minute 30, a 30 film that has got a 60-minute chase sequence in it that doesn't impact the film at all. Like, the story. And it's like, oh man, you fucking ruined it. And even the short film that they included on the DVD, you know, as a bonus, it's not perfect. Whereas with 
with O'Brien. We like O'Brien. We know O'Brien. And why is everybody on the station acting so strangely? <laughs> well, we find out. It's great. It's wonderful. So, yes, more Deep Space Nine, more uh, Irish uh, faded ill guys. I'm in favor of yeah. this. The, They're all uh, screwed anyways. The, the other, <laughs> I was just thinking of other um, gloomy Irishmen uh, <laughs> characters that I can think of. The only one that I can think of is uh, in a Dan Simmons novel called The Terror, mm-hmm. where the main character is uh, yeah, gloomy Irish. At the Arctic um, Expedition? Yeah, that's the one. I was just talking about that in the show notes I was doing for um, The Coming Race. I was talking about the the TV mm. show adaptation, and uh, yeah, it's was uh, it good? Uh yeah, it is good. It's too long, which is unfortunate, but it's the well done. Too long as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dan Simmons writes way too long. He used to yeah. not write that way, but everybody wants him to write long now. Sad mm. story. Yeah, it, it's and tough. it's not over. To, it's not way, way, way too long. It's just too long. It could have been like four episodes instead of seven or eight or whatever it was. Mm. Now, that's a, another true story that has been modified slightly to make it uh, weird, right? Oh, I think modified heavily. <laughs> well, the facts are all true. I mean, I mean except for the <laughs> the uh, giant polar bear monster that is, you know, a spirit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, the, you know they that they're eating stuff that might make them see that and get paranoid and all that. I mean that's all speculation, but hey, it could be true. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like how you're like trying to make the like trying to come up with the science fiction explanation for like a fantasy. <laughs> no, I mean uh, to make it like better for you. They really <laughs> literally uh, said maybe that's why the expedition was so doomed that the they had. S- they had fucked up on the uh, tinned meat, and it was all contaminated yeah. with lead. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Simmons is work; he's doing exactly what Robert E. Howard is doing, uh, but you know, adding a supernatural element to make it ec- sort of uh, a little less depressing and more interesting. Because if mm. you if you rec- like, I used to watch a lot of those HBO real life movies, you know, of biopics, where they'd find a person from the 20th century or something who was interesting and they just do a biopic of them they're really kind of depressing because <laughs> even if they're spending you know time with a glamorous person generally they have an alcohol problem the wife dies on them right it, real life is, is much harsher than stories are generally mm. so if you can spice it up with a little uh fant- of the fantastic it becomes um more Sprightly <laughs> and less dour. A spoonful of sugar. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm trying to say. It helps the medicine go down. <laughs> I think we're done. I'm going to press stop unless somebody has something really important that we missed to say. Uh, we didn't talk about the slash fiction. Oh, the slash fiction! Oh, oh I forgot. What, what, what was it called? Um, i don't remember what it's called let me dig it up um yeah no i was so i was looking up uh, essays about this story there's not a lot out there and on like page four of the results there was something from an archive of our own and there was a a nice gay slash fiction sequel to this yeah i I had a feeling it was gay i was looking at it and i'm like wakes up in bybar's tent and then they fall in love (laughs) 
<laughs> what a weird thing to write a write a um I mean somebody had to read this story and say, you know what's missing from this? Some hot gay sex. They're both yeah. I mean, it's clear that they were grasping that pull at the beginning of the film. They <laughs> the story uh, thing. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, yeah, we should have uh, we should have gotten the author of that off of uh, the podcast. So we well, take us through your inspiration for this story. <laughs> yeah, we could get him to read it. I'll read a section of it here. Um, he was not alone. That was the first thing Cahal became aware of upon waking. He wasn't alone, and he didn't know who the other was. He took care to keep his breathing slow and even, so that as, so as to still appear unconscious and tried to remember. The battle had been lost. All had fallen before him. Unable to stand against the combined forces of the Karamesians and, and Baibar's Mamelukes, he had saluted Baibar's as one king to another, and then he'd leapt. He'd summoned what strength he had remained in his bleeding body for one final attack. Cahal remembered nothing more. He didn't even know if his sword had met its target. All he was certain of was that he shouldn't be alive. He should have died out there with the others. I'm skipped down a bit. Cahal felt There's his a- lips curve in an answering smile as he closed his eyes and let sleep take him. <laughs> what were you, you know, gonna say? A great bit where he says, uh, "No, I, I said there was only one pair of eyes like that in the world, <laughs> and now there isn't a pair because I took one of them out and I oh. really about it because it ruined your face." Oh my god, it's a comedy. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> it's almost all dialogue. It looks like. Um, no, no, it's, yeah, it was... it's um, it, they're uh, sitting and enjoying the sea with a warm stallion. <laughs> Oh my god. That's funny. That is really funny. I, I would not have expected that. But I did do some searching around and you're right there isn't uh, there's almost nothing out there on it. But I also didn't look for any uh I didn't think to look at the slash fiction department. <laughs> what is our archive of our own? I've never heard of it. It sounds familiar. Oh, that's but- that's where the slash fiction lives. Oh. It's, a, it's a Hugo Award-winning uh, fan Oh, that's fiction. where I heard it from. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um, right. It's it's a site where you post your own uh, fan fiction, and it does have an amazingly good um, tagging system mm-hmm. for classification if you know what kind of slash fiction you're looking for. has some awesome ones here. For. There's you only one story tag, though where's the thunder? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really an impressive, uh, uh, well done fan creation. The author the is Galarian is. underscore Ash, um, and then it says uh, category MM. So I'm assuming male, male fandom, yes. the Source of Thunder, relationship Bybars and Kahal, uh, characters <laughs> the Bybars Harun Akbar and Kahal, <laughs> enemies to lover <laughs> is the additional tags. Post canon, mm-hmm. canon divergence, fix it. <laughs> That's what, probably the thing that was missing, uh, Trish. <laughs> it wasn't a gay love story. <laughs> That's hilarious. 4,000 words and a th- 101 hits. And it's got some comments and kudos as well. See? Robert E. Howard still has a legacy. There you go. Yep. That is uh, honestly rather shocking. That the story <laughs> inspired some fan fiction, but 
<laughs> like any fan fiction, right? Like any fan fiction is surprising. I'm going to yeah. read um, yeah. the comments here. Uh, by the way, there's a cat in the story. I forgot to mention that. These two have very fun and intense dynamic that I enjoyed a lot in this fic. And the red cat <laughs> is adorable. I love them circling around each other until they finally ended up together. Of course you did. Wait, uh, there's a red cat in this too? Uh-huh. Oh, I'm That's so exactly happy. Because every, almost every character in the book is red. That's in the story is redhead. Because mm-hmm. um, Kahal metaphor. has coarse red hair. Um, uh, Harun has gold gold hair, but it's tinged with red. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who else? There's there's Eleanor, another character. Possibly. Um, no, actually, sorry. Eleanor has black hair. There is. No, uh, it's it's the hair, uh, but there's, Eleanor's there's else. companion. The bandit that he Wolfgar, rides with or, that has red yeah, hair. It's Wolfgar, Dane, the Dane. Oh, uh, Wolfgar the Dane. Yeah. Right. Right, which in the Middle East, you don't find often find all those. Ah, there's a, there's a little more than you might expect. That you know, there's a whole uh, uh, even Bybars is from you know a, a place where there's redheads and I don't know. There's a ethnic group. Um, I want to read the Galarian Ashes uh, reply to the person who said, I love that they finally ended up. Oh, I'm so happy that you enjoyed the dynamic of them circling around each other. They have a very unique and special relationship in the original story. And I really hoped I could capture at least a little of that. I'm super glad you liked the cat, too. Thank you very much for reading and taking the time to comment. Somebody else. This is a beautifully written, and while I'm unfamiliar with the canon, you do a great job of breathing life into these two characters. Oh, and I love that bit about the stray cat staying. <laughs> <laughs> Galarian says, thank you so much for the kind compliments. I'm thrilled to hear that bit worked for you. Yay. Then somebody else says, what wonderful tension you hold between Kahal and Bybars. Such a classic situation, but you've made it fresh and new here, and I particularly like your emphasis on the lack of personal hatred. <laughs> I find myself sympathizing with Bybar's honorable patience and Kahal's tussle with himself, and thus your resolution is both hard-won and satisfying. I did like the little details that work to reveal each character, too, particularly Bybar's Let's Ride. <laughs> <laughs> what else would a warrior from this step say? On a completely different note, it is difficult. It's delightful to learn about Bybar's cat garden in Cairo. Oh, this is a true fact, by the way. Bybar's did have a cat garden in Cairo. Um, that's at the end of the story. It says, notes, this, there is one historical fact here, namely that Bybar's loved cats. And that's actually what his name means. Um, it uh, He's a... He, his uh, symbols two panthers so actually mm. maybe this is what was missing from the story he endowed at least well, one cat did say that he was pantherish yeah yeah that's the most that's the most howard thing any person <laughs> in history has ever done uh, he, yeah he said that um uh, uh kahal was like a bear and and Bybars <laughs> was like a panther when they had that fight together but um he did uh i don't think he I'm, even though he's really into the male gaze, uh, men gazing at other men, um, he's not, I'm pretty sure Howard is not, didn't write anything actually male gay, but he did write a lot of lesbian stuff. Um, so is, it, it, is, uh, Was that to sell, though? Or? No, I think it's personally interested as well, because some of it was poetry, mm. right? No, it also uh. sold pretty well. <laughs> Well, no. I mean, it it would sell well amongst his friends, but I don't think any of that got published, right? 
Oh, no, like uh, Red Nails has a bunch of... Like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, but that's... No, I meant the poetry, the, the explicit lesbian poetry oh. <laughs> that got published in the 70s in some, you know, our, uh, some Howard Journal. That was just for him and his friends or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there's lots of explicit lesbianism in... Uh, in the Conan stories and uh, other Howard Weird Tale stories, because that would make the cover, right? Uh, the Slithering and Shadow. And yeah. lesbians. That, that goes together. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think that might actually, that probably would have fixed the story in a certain sense, uh, but also might have <laughs> ruffled a few feathers in the wrong. <laughs> maybe that's what was wrong. Oriental stories should have been like. Uh, I don't know. Gay oriental stories. Yeah. Like spicy gay oriental stories. Actually, there's almost the a shout out. Ingredients. <laughs> there's almost a shout out to sp- spicy stories in this. It was spicy tales he told at the. Uh... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Did you notice yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, I, I don't. I, Alex, I don't think there was any actual spicy stories written by well yeah there was actually no, no. there was there uh, was dragon of Kowatu. yeah and that's up on the site too i'll have to send that to um, connor he wrote a couple of uh so if you look into howard i think on the gutenberg australia yeah that's page, 18 pages nice index of his stuff mm-hmm. and there's one section called uh spicy and juvenilia nice <laughs> that's quite a pairing <laughs> there we go i'm just send that to the group here and it is the it's it takes the cover too i think spicy adventure stories september 1936 uh yeah look there's a lady getting hooked <laughs> sam <Right>. walser <laughs> is his pseudonym for this and uh it's very spicy look at the illustrations you will see yeah it's, it's amazing what a 30-year-old who basically didn't go anywhere except for Mexico did, right? I mean, he's all over the world in his stories. Shanghai and, you know, all parts of the United States. He's a, he's sailing all over the place. And the it's possible he didn't even know how to swim, right? Yeah, the Middle East, uh, all over Afghanistan and all these other, you know, our Afri- tons of Africa stories. There's some Africa stories. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Just a powerhouse, this guy. Can't say enough. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. In case somebody has something wonderful to say. Thank you very much. I know it's getting late for some of you on the East Coast. Yep. Thank you. Um, Next week, same time for um, the tomb. No, not the tomb. The hound. The hound. I'll start prepping for that maybe Monday. Um, There is a a comic book adaptation, but I don't know if there's a scan available. I have it on my shelf. It's a Japanese one. 
Tanabe. You guys know the one I'm talking about? No. G-O-U Tanabe. Uh, Japanese translated into English. Um, I've read the story before, so um, I don't know much. Uh, He also did At the Mountains of Madness and uh, another one. But I haven't read it yet, so I, I can't say whether it's amazing, although the art looks good. And I think there might be a uh, at least two or three other comic books. I'll try and organize that for people who are participating in that. If anybody um, has, uh, if you know, like Leslie S. Klinger's, uh, mm-hmm, I have Lovecraft, it. Both. You have it? Yeah, both. Uh, yeah, in in the first one, The Hound is there. And I was just with his other, other um, stories I've read in that thing are really well annotated in mm-hmm. terms of the references. And, yeah, it's full um, of stuff, that the, one context yeah it's great and um there's the original weird tales is on up on the website as well on the pdf page um anybody here uh gonna be there other than connor oh trish um yep okay um uh scott is not it's saturday at 7 p.m same time next week who else on that one misa uh trish connor jesse um Mice uh, yeah, has never done yeah. a Lovecraft before. Keep me as a maybe on there. All right. Oh, I can be there. Oh, I'll hey, there's Evan. Hey. Well, I know that seven is eleven o'clock at three p.m. Yeah. Sorry about that. I must have counted backwards instead of forwards. Uh, Easy to do. Because uh, <laughs> I had the, uh, I had my old day planned out to read the story Damn. and run for an hour and then come back. Uh, yeah, you this. you should do the hound clearly, given that you're you're uh, so Lovecrafty. I don't I'm surprised to see you not there. Who who else said they wanted to be on? Was oh, uh, Will? Question mark. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Look at that sequel. I mean, seems like that's a good story. We, the what? The sequels? That Seawolf. Oh, yeah, I, I want to do the Seawolf. So sure. Um, I also I, I, I well, it's not really sci-fi or fantasy. It's philosophy, and it's it's very uh, Robert E. Howardy too, as from what I gather. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's also well, it's all um, social Darwinism. Yeah, and the Sea Wolf is a uh, is also it's 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 a it's an essential text in Philip Jose Farmer's Walt Newton universe that I haven't read. So I like it. I heard a podcast. I think is, it was. I think it was. Um, Might have been. The uh, Science Fiction Book Review podcast was talking about how there was a, a Ben Bova novel that's uh, a retelling of The Seawolf. And I was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> but it made sense <laughs> given. Like a, like a poor man, that sounds like a poor man's um, uh, other log of Phileas Fogg. Yeah, Ben Bova's not the best. Not, not yeah. in terms of writing, anyways. I, I'm, I'm too neg on Ben Bova because, like, he said this like horrible thing in like 1975 that was like women have contributed nothing to the field of science fiction or no, nothing significant to the field of science fiction. And it's like, like, uh-huh. like, okay, so we're like, so we're like seven years past Left Hand of Darkness, right? Like, like, like this is like, like not to mention Frankenstein. And- <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, that, you can argue that that's not science fiction. I mean, it, it's a, it's oh, obviously a way overstatement. No, no, I, I've read it, uh, and honestly, it is, it is awesome, and you can read it as science fiction, but it's so not, you know, 
about the technology as much as the as the imagination of it, it, it's it's I mean it's that subtitle it's the modern Prometheus right it's iconically um, we uh, it's taking the reins of science and saying if this goes on. And then a yeah, guy but does there's it. There's no universe. But yeah, Jesse, well, you could say it's point. like there's space no opera, I guess, if except for you well, know. Well, but see, I would say space uh, opera is not science fiction. Medical opera instead of space yeah, but, opera. I was telling. Like, but Ben Boba's comments unacceptable. Whether like I, like, it's it an. Like, it's but look, if you really hated Lee Brackett and you thought not, she didn't do anything good, and you found uh, four or five other people who you didn't like, I mean, it's possible. But leaving out Le Guin seems like. He's obviously just not reading anymore at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, like that's like it's like stri- like you've like veered over your sexism is veered over into misogyny. At that there point, is right? there yeah. is uh, <laughs> like yeah like like it's just like I'm like willfully ignoring like leading people <laughs> in the field to say that they've done nothing. Yeah, I would say that that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, um, but uh, I shouldn't talk ill of him. He died this year, didn't he? I don't last year, this year. Uh, he was not a great writer. That's the thing. He's he's an okay editor, I guess. He, no, he wrote like I've read a couple of his books, and they're basically pop boilers. Yeah, they're not great. I mean, the thing is, is if he said, you know, I've contributed nothing to major to science fiction, I'd have to agree with him, right? Most, <laughs> but uh, if he says all women, all women basically contributed nothing. Um, it depends on how scrutinized you you go, because it is a male-dominated genre, but it is, there are some major exceptions, and you'd have to accept them, right? Or excerpt them, or deny them? Yeah. Yeah, nothing is an extremely strong statement there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's probably not well thought through at the time as well. And, you know, honestly, Will, the more I... You, you should find the quote and look at the context, because the more I... I, I've got into this hate listening mode on, on that um, our opinions are correct. Like I look, I, I'm excited to hear how wrong they are, because they they just are so spectacularly like blasé about saying things that are not true. That I'm like, well, maybe this is like a, like they did a show just on um, J.K. Rowling. And, you know, they really like J.K. Rowling. A lot of the guests they had on, you know, wrote J.K. Rowling fan fiction, and they, they're reclaiming it, which is hilarious, right? Because um, <laughs> she's still alive and controls the IP, right? Yeah, um, I, I, I can't really see reclaiming that an author still alive <laughs> arguing against you. <laughs> it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. But um, the thing is, 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 you know, like, if you look at the actual words that he said in the context it might be terrible um but i i find most people are pretty reasonable it's but when you start taking them out of context and start you know like uh, it's 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 just like basically uh what's his name the stupid uh campbell guy john w campbell like if you read his stuff he's clearly bonkers um and he's a chauvinist but he's uh, he and he says ridiculously stupid things occasionally but to, call him, <laughs> but to call him a fascist is technically incorrect. So when people say he's a fascist, which some people did do in the past as well as in the near present, um, they're overstating their case. And I think that that's uh, – it's, it's a mistake, right? Just uh, – so 
I, I'm not defending Ben Bova. I'm just saying, let's look at the, what, where did you see that quote? Because I, I hadn't heard uh, that I, one. I, I was doing some research on him like a few years. I'm like trying to pull it up now. Okay. And like my internet's being bad. Oh, sorry. Uh, but I was doing some research on him a few years ago because uh, I was like trying to read a lot of science fiction novels about Sirius. And he um, like wrote one. Sirius the uh, planet? That, like is not very uh, The star? Yeah, or the, yeah, yeah. Okay. And he like wrote one that's like not very good. I like yeah. read about a third of it. He's not um, very good. But right. I was like looking at like different things about him at the time and that was like uh like just like something that he had like said in the mid 70s is that like women have like contributed nothing significant to the field women have contributed nothing ben boba <laughs> let's see if we can. nothing without a woman or a girl i've excoriated ben boba's fiction in the past but i have nothing but admiration for his work as an editor at analog okay that's not it um, well, if you can find the quote, I'd be interested. Uh, he, here he is praising the Marching Morons, which is a terrible story. It's interesting, but terrible. An important, but not a good story. I think it was is probably the, yeah, it's, it's probably the worst thing Cornbluth ever wrote that yeah, I've read. It's interesting ideas, but meh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of wrongheaded and he's being playful. Um, but people... People get too excited about stupid things. Like that, that that he was picking up something else and and transforming it. Um, it was about the Chinese. Uh, it was a yellow peril thing, and and and, and it's so popular. Like, yeah. Oh, he did die in December. Yeah, uh, it was not a great loss. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've read a couple of the things, and I thought, eh, nothing special here. You know, Aldrich Budras all over the used bookstores. Yeah, well, he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of stuff. That's why. Um, but also, you know, some of the hard ones to get are the ones that people like the, that they keep at the used bookstore, right? So try and find a Lovecraft there, man. <laughs> An old one. Very difficult. Nope. <laughs> try and yeah, find a Philip K. Dick. <laughs> a Robert E. Howard, for that matter. I Jesus, no. I found some of the paperbacks because I was like, people keep them because yep. they don't want to. They annoy. they like them. Whereas you'll find about a million copies of uh, the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> yes, <laughs> used right. bookstores. The one that I I was so upset with was that with all we get filed in the science fiction section was Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Oh, oh my God, that <laughs> book was. Everybody yeah. had a piece of that book. Oh yeah, it was a f- you know books like that that are a fad, and then yeah. they go out, and everyone just you can't even give them away. Uh, there was one I I found out about when we did the um, show on uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers that is kind of like a follow up to the Eric Van Daniken phenom, and that was uh, in the scene in the mud baths in that movie. Somebody's reading one of those books, and I'm like, "Is this a real book?" And I looked it up, and it it was. And what what was cool is it actually helps the story if you know what that book is about, because it's about sort of like a uh, when worlds collide sort of thing, um, <laughs> and so it sort of helps tell the story. Um, because they have a little bit of dialogue back and forth about the book. And, oh, yeah, I've read it twice or whatever, right? And it's sort of foreshadowing something to come in the story. Um, but generally, those books are absolutely valueless. <laughs> mm. 
Um, although uh, maybe I'm insulting Will's people. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, that, Sorry, you I'm seem just, to. I'm, I'm like yeah. on Google looking at Ben Bova. On okay, phone you seem like, to treat them as artifacts, so like, right? Um, we're just gonna have to like, we're just gonna have to like pause my like Ben Bova rage, but uh, that's my, uh, uh, that's like my uh, memory from uh, like 2017. Um, Somebody else uh, said something a bit snarky about um, Farmer in the Sky, and I'm like, Farmer in the Sky is a really good book. How could you say that? You know, it was it was a meh or something like that. I'm like, no, no, it's quite interesting because it's different from his. It's not boy goes to space and becomes part of a space crew, right? It's boy goes to space becomes a farmer. <laughs> that's different. I mean, that's not you know. Don't go to space to become a farmer, but he's like literally making uh, making the most likely job other than space miner, right? As the main thing, and of course he comes from farm country, so he knows a little bit where he speaks. Missouri? I think he's Missouri. Is that where Heinlein's from? I think so. The Mighty Mo. Huh. How about that? Let me look. I feel like like Missouri's like like weirdly like the most American state or something, right? It's like uh, Butler, Missouri. Jesse's eidetic memory is striking again. So, like, Heimland's from there, and it's, like, where Christ is going to return someday. <laughs> is that right? Is that uh, According the... to the Book of Mormon, the like, oh, God. essential religious text of the United States. Uh, oh, maybe he was the Christ. Jesus, um, I yeah, hope that's I, not I'm true. start telling people that, like, you, like, refer to Robert Heinlein <laughs> as Christ, and, like, just, like, see, like, what kind of people I can get to come talk to Semi-accurate. you. Semi-accurate. <laughs> Semi-accurate. <laughs> Uh, look, he he didn't write. Er- not everything he wrote was perfect. Uh, he, you know, he was a bit too interested in some things and a lot, well, a lot too interested in other things. But <laughs> I think his work is well worth re- rereading at some point in your life after you read it once, which is not safe. I was told. Yeah, I was. Uh, somebody recommended. Um, I know, like just you recommended that I read it. Yeah, uh, but somebody else recommended as a good example of. Um, very clear writing in mm. terms of the style stylistically. Super clear. It I, is. Oh yeah. yeah especially I, 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 the, as long as you don't go for some really late stuff. Um, if you get any of his they, juveniles, it's it's. Oh my god! There was a, there was. I think it was on that. Our opinions are correct. Show they were saying his writing was turgid, and I'm like, here's the mm. opening from Starship Troopers. As like, it's the clearest fucking thing you've ever read. <laughs> So mm. fucking clear and beautiful, like just like snappy, fast, right? Mm. Opposite of turgid. Yeah, no, it's super clear. Uh, it's uh, it's like, you know, this story is a little less clear than it could be, um, but that's because he's trying to do a little sort of old fashioned style of writing too, right? He's um, it's, yeah, I mean, it, this it's is pseudo like um, um, pseudo King James. Said. Right, sort of that, or giving you that old feel of sentence construction on purpose backwards, with a yeah. few weird vo- verbs. Oh, the uh, woundy. There's a word from this story, right? Woundy it means very. <laughs> it was a mighty blow. It's a big blow, right? Uh, you gave me a woundy clout, <laughs> a big one. Interesting, right? This was in. 
This is in, it's in Swords of Thunder twice, and he describes yeah. the clout or the hit on the head the same way twice, woundy. He uh, he also mentions um, when uh, Kahal's riding up to the Arab castle that he goes through a wadi or something like that. A yeah, a wadi is a dry. Is it? Dr- oh, yeah, like a- well, in this case, it's a it's a oasis. I think. Oh right, okay. I had no clue what that was. It's a. We have a we have a Wadi, Kentucky. A town called. Yeah, Wadi. yeah. We have like any kind of weird like like name for a town oh. we got. It's a valley, ravine, or channel that is dry except in the rainy season. Mm. Okay. So. Yeah. Anyway, I gotta get off you. Thank you, Will. Um, I assume you're gonna show up tomorrow or something to talk about planet stories. He's gone. Uh, Trish is on here. Um, is she's like somebody that I want to talk to about this? Okay. Uh, uh, so um, I'm gonna start a podcast about planet stories. Um, there's a lot of like uh, audio uh, available for it, and I want to like uh, invite people to talk to me about read along style about about like yeah different like planet story stuff, and so th- I probably like. I think this would be like several months from now, but would like uh, probably to invite uh, different people who are on this uh, tonight to be on different episodes of that. Uh, so just something to look out for. Sure. I'm interested. Um, uh, you, would you give a reading list or say, here are some things I'm going to be discussing and chime in if you want to do any of them? Because uh, I'm not sure I'll have have time to do a read and say these are the ones I'm interested in. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, no. I was thinking about just. Uh, I, I'm still like in the the researching phase, but uh, it would be like more like let's have a conversation about what you'd be interested in doing. Sure. Yeah, I'd be interested. Let me know when you get that a uh, little more um, closer to happening. Yeah, yeah. Start yeah. picking recording um, dates. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, so we're still like far off, but um, uh, going to uh, uh, started to do some preliminary work on that this weekend. So uh, uh, yeah, definitely interested in chatting with people about that. Cool. If you, if you want me to fix the uh, the art more than I did, I can try and do it. But um, yeah, yeah, we can talk. We can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm happy to help and get you up and running as much as I can. And I can even give hosting if you uh, can figure out a way to put it on a website somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that's an issue. Right, I'm gonna go eat, Although yeah, Evan I'm has a way of doing it, too. That seems cheap. Yep. Way of doing what? Uh, hosting podcast files. You, you, you're, not, you're not paying a lot, right? Oh, no. Virtually yeah. free, I think. Barely notice it. Yeah, archive.org t- could do it too, but it's not it's not Especially as trustworthy. Like I, n- I never use U.S. dollars, so we just sit there. <laughs> Especially now that the government sends me the sum occasionally. Some U.S. dollars? Yeah, the government sent me like fourteen hundred money. As well, so. <laughs> oh, Doesn't yeah. see much to most people. But no, I, I rarely use U.S. dollars, so it it goes quite a ways. No me. doubt. Um, I just renewed hosting for the website and it was not cheap, but, mm. um, that's cause, uh, maybe it wasn't the hosting, maybe it was the, um, the, 
I don't know, the podcast PDF stuff. That It's getting really big, right? 600 yeah, episodes. Yeah, you have a lot of content. And a lot there. of PDFs. And like I just made one today or yesterday that is like, I have to do it in this resolution. It's 13 megabytes, right? Which is big. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. up 13 times 6,000, mm-hmm. it gets big. Yeah. So, and there's, and then there's the, it's not just like having a hard drive. You also have to pay for cycles, like, Every time somebody clicks on it and stuff. So it's not super expensive, but um, my mom told me we got another Patreon. So I was like, oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> that, which means I should probably do one of those things I'm supposed to do where I put myself out there office hours wise and say, hello, I would happily <laughs> listen to you say how wonderful I am. Yes. <laughs> Right, Connor? <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, and then try and trick the guy into recording audiobooks for me. I say, hey, you should well, be really interested in this guy from a long time ago, 19th century. He's so cool. <laughs> yeah. You need to advertise the Patreon nah, um, just, a bit more. Because I think I, it's, I don't know how I found it initially. Yeah. But, um, it's not but, uh, linked very well. But I feel like it's, um, how many I, Patreons do you have? I think it's like three. <laughs> uh, yes, one of, you need to promote yourself a little more. Yeah, one of, one of them is Connor. Um, but the thing I is... I need is, to take off now. Though, yeah, so have a great one, Trish. See you next time. Thanks again for having me. I mean, I, I, I'm always interested to discuss things with you, even yeah, if it's I good don't to particularly um, like the story that much. Oh, but, I think uh, you came to like it this, more. This was not right? a waste of time. This was See? definitely worth reading. There you go. Love it. It's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Talk putting words later. in your mouth. Bye. What? See ya. <laughs> Have a great one. All right. Bye. Yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah. I, let me look at the schedule and see if there's anything else. trying to get some government money for, for a podcast. Like, so they can shut you down? I, 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 do a, do a, like a history of Taiwan podcast. Get a graduate student. Like, yeah. Let me write them. Wow. In no, English. you don't want to turn That's it into silly. a job, do you? I think there's some people in Chinese doing that kind of stuff, but nothing in English. Yeah. The government might be interested. Especially if you do it really Taiwan-centric. Si- CIA it. stuff? I don't play China. That's where the real... Be, be you should be talking to Alex kind of about this. That's where the gravy is, is, is in the government contracts. That's what, that's how you get the the real government s- stimulus, not through the piddly $1,400 check you might be getting sometime, someday. Yeah. There was supposed to be two thousand, according to some something I heard. I didn't get my six hundred. I, I I look it up, and apparently I I didn't get it. But they they sent us an extra. They sent me an extra twelve hundred last time. Weird. So oh no, that's good. For that the out. two of you, is that for your wife? Is well, she American? They didn't as well? send for my daughter, so I didn't get that oh. five hundred. But Damn. my wife got twelve hundred. I got twelve hundred. Then they sent another twelve hundred check, like later. Hmm. Like they like they fucked up. Okay. And, Maybe they found out. That's why Cash I'm not them both. <laughs> wow. But that would imply some competence in the government, which may or may not be there. <laughs> They're not. They should be really good at sending out universal checks, and they are semi-competent about that. Yeah. Well, I don't have the direct deposit because I, you know, I haven't paid U.S. taxes in eight years. I just filed a tax return with zero income. Mm. I don't know. You're supposed to report foreign income, but I rarely do it. It's all in um, 
Bitcoin. If it's under, if it's under 100000 it's not taxable anyways. Oh, really? If you make more than 100000 the U.S. government taxes your overseas. Anyway. That's crazy. I think the Trump tax cuts mm. changed that a little bit, raised it. I mean, anyways, I'm never going to make that much. No. No, definitely not. That's an incredibly high tax bracket. <laughs> it is. Well, no, this is if your foreign income is taxed mm. by the U.S. government after a certain amount. Yeah. But so if you're like, working so in Beijing... But I, I think if you're like, if you're French working in Beijing, the French government never asked for anything from, you know, any of your Chinese income. But, this, uh, is income but like, this is income made abroad, which the U.S. government doesn't have any, shouldn't have any claim to. But they, yeah, are you, they, are you taxed by um, the Chinese government, though? Yeah, I am. Mm. So you can deduct yep. taxes you pay to the local government. But there are like, like if you're an engineer or a, a, a diplomat or something. I guess diplomats would be paid in U.S. dollars <laughs> by the U.S. government, presumably. But if you're like, if you're like a, you know, some of these foreign advisor types, you easily make that much. And, mm. and there's been people who give up their U.S. passport because they don't want to pay. Mm. That's not talked about very much, though, right? People don't want to think about. Well, none that. of us make that much, so we never really talk about. We it's just like, do you file that stupid zero dollar form? Mm-hmm. I do it because then I can like apply for student loan stuff and keep kicking the can on the, on the student loans. <laughs> Cause I, I, That's I, crazy this, that you still have student loans. How old are you? Why well, I, I I was in school till I was thirty. Yeah, that's forty three. But I I I've a, I paid off about three fourths yeah, of it, and then you're I went young. abroad. Yeah. Then I went abroad and stopped paying. I just I just filed. Did you know I didn't have student loans? I went to university for 16 years. Didn't have any student loans. Yeah. That's awesome. Biden might might cancel some. I have less incentive to... One of the reasons reasons I could do it is because we have, like, I I think, like, keep comparing it to the United States. Like, it just gets worse and worse. My father died when I was really young, so they give a uh, orphan's benefit, right? And Which means as long as you go to school, you get... Uh, money. Now it doesn't go up every year, right? But I'm like, I'm going to go to school. <laughs> there is no more money. Mm. Now well, it doesn't cover the whole tuition, but the tuition isn't that much. Yeah. And I just don't buy the books. Just, just like photocopy whatever I need, or maybe don't don't even get the textbooks. Um, and that's like, oh well, I'm going to do that, and then the healthcare is free. And then I, I was working at the time too, right? So I'm paying for it with my my work, but uh, mm. but it's it's just crazy that everybody's got these massive student loans. They're getting nothing for it. Your degrees are worthless. You work at fucking Starbucks, <laughs> and then and then you're, when you get sick, you're you go bankrupt. Fuck <laughs> that. <laughs> Um, I heard uh, the uh, Australian system is the second best kind in the world. Well, it's um, for healthcare. That is, it, oh, for healthcare, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, uh, That's the, what the Tulsi Gabbard was saying. Is kind of is interesting. Like my parents didn't pay anything for uh, education. University was free, right? Like a lot of those places at the time in like the seventies, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, but. Um, but like I have a pretty sizable chunk of student loans, but basically they're interest free. 
So it just sits there and does it doesn't accumulate at all, and you pay it out very slowly through mm-hmm. your income. You get like one percent or of and you're your young too, right? Voice. You're like, you're not even yeah, thirty yeah. yet. Yeah, no. I'm you're like, still uh, time to just, exceed so. Robert E. Howard. You just have to hurry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll hurry forward in time. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, but the healthcare system is yeah pretty good, I suppose. Yeah. And I have no comparison. I don't know much about the American one other than it's like it's just shit, super fucking expensive, and it and it ruins you if you get a major sickness and you don't have amazing uh, insurance through your work, which is where you have to get it from. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. Yeah, it's quite bizarre that you get it that way. Like, uh, what was the idea of you get health insurance through your work? Why can't you just? Evan knows the answer to this, and it's to do with racism. I think Evan knows. Yeah, it's basically they they were going to give it to everybody, and then they realized black people would be getting it too, so they said, "Fuck that! They're not equal to us." Well, the, the. I mean, that's not the question. It directly is why wasn't there universal health care versus why the employee-based system? It was, it was patchwork, There could have right? been a totally different system where yeah. it could have been even worse, right? <laughs> I don't see how. Yeah. I mean, how no, could it be I think wor- it's, worse? I don't know. That's I mean, question. I, actually, uh, I will point out that, that definitely was won by Obamacare is actually yeah, worse yeah. in a certain sense because you're forced to buy from an insurance company. Right. Well, you're forced to. Is you're well, forced you to for a company. You're forced to buy from whatever company the whatever company that your employer. Right. And, works and, with too. So. So it's like a it's, private you're tax to buy via the government or. The and you don't get the benefit of that private tax like you do. Uh, yeah. Here. It's it, it, it's really interesting here, and you know what's so much better? I, I assume it's the same way in Australia. When you get sick as a politician, you go to the same fucking doctors and hospitals as regular people. There isn't like a special tier, right? So if your loved one gets sick, they have to go to the same hospital you have to go to, right? This is, this is in Canada? Yeah. Mm. Whereas in the States, right, there's tiers of hospitals. So we're going to get you the best care. We that That's not a, this, uh, we'll pay the extra premium, blah, 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 blah. You go so the politicians like um, the congressionalites and the senators and all them they have a they have their own special version of healthcare and their special hospitals and they don't have to suffer in the same way that regular people do. Mm, yeah, that's pretty fun. My dad has to drive two hours to get VA care, Veterans Administration care. Yeah, at least which is yeah. bizarre, like because that's yeah. a single payer system, right? Or yeah, the government pays for the veterans health care it's a good thing i guess but yeah you know, you, you, you 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 sustain the empire you help sustain the empire but notice notice that life. they don't all go to that hospital only the president does because he's the right the president might go to the va yeah. but the but like the closest va hospital that my dad can go to is like two hours away he can't just go to the local hospital for like you know that's bizarre that it's there's actually like like I would have thought that divide and conquer, bud. But they they reimburse you on whatever healthcare. Yeah, you that's use what it, at should, any be. Hospital. it should be. It's just that 
the the hospital that bills the VA or whatever, the Veterans Administration. That would make more sense. Yeah. But there are these special veterans hospitals. Yeah, that's a ghetto. Really odd. It's yeah, anything it's that's not universal is designed to fuck somebody, right? That's mm. that's the if you get a private uh, prison, that's designed to fuck you. <laughs> you get a or fuck somebody else. I remember there was an age when I when I discovered that prisons could be privately owned. Oh my god! <laughs> and I was like, "What? No, are you sure? For profit, private I just owned the prisons." Government owned. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's for-profit, privately-owned prisons that are, like, they have investors, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they have a That's profit. A, yeah, I thought it was, like, well, the government runs all the prisons because they enforce the laws, so that would only make you sense. Would, but, you would uh, think, right? This is one of those predictions yeah, well, where Scott got really right, where when capitalism runs out of places to expand to, it just starts consuming the I was thinking we, we should do a show uh, on that Thomas Frank book. Uh, Listen, liberal. You know that that book. Yeah, I read that book. What, would you say it's worthy of a show? Because I heard a lot um, about it. It's it's more. I mean, I like mean, basically, I should just give it to. We've been doing lately is tied deal with automation and. Yeah, and, I was just thinking. Um, maybe I should just give it to Paul. Is... <laughs> Listen, liberal. <laughs> yeah, that might be fun. <laughs> uh, it's it might tie. There's not Thomas much Frank about technology no right? it's really in the but there is this argument that frank makes that that really what happened is the democrats became the technocratic class yeah and the the, the party of the elites and the professional class the yeah the, the people who all give each other and their children jobs um and their what what rent seekers um and yeah and that's who they that's who they serve so Hmm. Anyway, I might head off. Um, yeah, I can understand that. It's getting late. Although it feels a lot later than it is. Um, it's, we only started at 7. Oh, man, I guess we started talking at 6, right? Uh, but uh, This is a good time to do it. <laughs> if I actually read the book on time. Um, <laughs> well, next week, we, it's the same time, so do your homework. Well, the early. Hound, too. The I Hound. Really to... You need to read it again. Get those thoughts Sparking is is that I next week have, or the week? It's next week, notes, next week. Clinger. So Just like my check. Clinger edition, you know, has all those annotations. Like I have almost as much as the annotations. Oh, at least. Oh, wow. I find him to be very under under. Um, uh, uh, mind you, not in the stories I haven't read, but I was looking at the ones in the stories I've read. And I'm like, mm, I could do more than this. Mind you, my yeah. my notes would be very different from his. Some are really good. Some are finale. Some are. Like you said, some things there really should be more. But I spend I spend a ton of time trying to get the original stuff right, like the like the letters to Weird Tales that he wrote that has talks about like he talks about the Hound in a letter that mm. he wrote to Weird Tales, um, and that to me is uh, super interesting and yeah. having the original art. And so he has some of the art, but he doesn't do a lot of that. Um, he just mostly says this is a real place. Here's a picture of the house that he's talking about here. But I think, um, like, in the case of Charles X. Ward, he sort of gave up. Like, <laughs> like, the beginning part of that story is really well annotated because he's talking about all the buildings and architecture right. of Providence. Yeah, he, his so focus is kind like, of... It actually, is like, goes on to the next page. Like, the footnotes are on the next page. But his right? focus That's seems so very But um, then the second different. half of the story, he's got almost no annotations at all, which hmm. really has a lot of interesting historical references and things. It, Interesting. It, it's... Because he's doing it for um, profit... 
Well, he's you know, like he did the. It's a professional. He's a professional annotator, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, like you know, when he's when you're doing it like that, he may have just run out of time, and he's like, "Well, we got this publication date. I got to do this." So, um, or he doesn't, you know. Uh, it's hard to find sometimes sources like that. Like when I'm trying to look up, when I have a question about Lovecraft's work, and I'm going, "I wonder mm-hmm. if Lovecraft ever mentioned anything about this." It's like, am I going to? If you don't have the collected letters, letters, that's right. You don't have an OCR of that. What, what are you going to do? Yeah, well, it's well. Um, is there an index in the collected letters that you can do that? I don't have the collected letters. Um, I think Evan There's has no some index. Photocopy. If we had well, an OCR of I it, have we two, could two, three, four, one and five have never been scanned and put online, as far as I know. I found two, three, four. I mm. had one and five in my hands from the interlibrary alone one summer. I was in Wisconsin, and I am killing myself for not scanning at the time. I took notes. And scan mm. them. That would really, really be useful to me. But I maybe someday they'll show up. Yeah, I, I expect everything will. Just got to get on that. But there's also the the selected letters are really sparse. Like most are edit, highly edited, and you're just getting a fraction of the letter. And mm. and it's not many of the letters. Like you've seen the Howard Lovecraft letters, mm-hmm. two volumes, like a thousand pages, right? Yeah, and that's unedited. Everything they have is there. Um, pretty much. I mean, maybe some. I recommend that book, even though I haven't read but read it back to. I think the selected letters has maybe like ten of the letters to Howard, so yeah. maybe about ten percent. Mm. Representative samples. I'm not sure that's true with all the authors that we're only getting like a sampling. But they have been publishing those like the Durleth letters, and that's not not you know. the one to pick up. <laughs> so, uh, what's the other one? Uh, what's the back? One dry. There's one side. dry. There's the long, um, yeah. I think they did long. Frank Beckham. It's all the same yep. press, right? Is it yep. subterranean? Hippocampus, like I think. No, Hippocampus. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I like their stuff. It's but expensive. they're really expensive. Those are... Shipping like, is fucking horrendous. Ones, but some of the others are... The shipping to Canada is expensive. I assume to Australia it's going to be double expensive. But if it's Actually, on Amazon... Yeah? But the means for oh. freedom is worth it. The means for freedom if yeah. you're... Howard, that's the Howard books. Ah, okay. They're good. I might check that you out. You get both sides. I I think that there's uh, that'd be a really good thing to do a podcast on. Just start reading it. You read the letter and then you talk about what they say because it's fascinating stuff, right? They're telling mm. stories, and when Howard starts telling a story, it's history that he thinks is really interesting. And he writes the way he writes in these um, in this story is the way he writes in. You know, that's how he ended up writing so much, right? He's just a natural storyteller. Mm. And and Lovecraft, you know, he's the same way, but in a different way, right? So yeah. it, it seems it really like very sparky, very... It's like, it's it's what I remember from early internet forums when you're arguing with somebody about philosophy. <laughs> you're yeah, like, it's... Really you know, you you, re- you read their argument, and then you you point to things in it that are inconsistent, and then you you want your text to be, it's going to be under scrutiny too. So that back and forth, um, and in sequence, mm. it feels like it, it's um it's like much it's. I uh, I went to a science fiction convention, and it's fucking terrible compared to a podcast. Like 
You go there, you hear four or five people speak on a question. The audience has stupid questions. The answers are stupid. It's very general. Or a podcast, you can get really fucking deep. But Mm. um, the only way you get deeper is really to have these extended written arguments, right? And that's what I'm, I'm so surprised, you know, why would you care to read anybody's letters? That's boring. That's not true. I totally want somebody to do a Robert E. Howard letter to H.P. Lovecraft podcast. Because if, if have you been listening to Voluminous at all? That I do listen to it. It's really yeah. good, right? Mm. I, the worst part about it is that them not knowing answers to questions that I think that they should know. But it's because they're, I, I apologize for them this way, they're actors. And actors are not scholars in the same way, right? They're interested, but because they didn't spend all their time thinking about phlogiston theory <laughs> or whatever, I'm, I have that on my mind because that was in the show notes for something else. Um, <laughs> and then they, they don't know about what he's arguing about as much. And they don't, uh, that's the other thing. Have you been listening to um, Evan? You still here, Evan? I'm here. Yeah. No, I mean Am the. I um, listen to voluminous. Yeah, voluminous, because whenever the Lovecraft will say Not something, and they think, they think like that he's covering for another thing, and like half the time I think they're completely just don't get his psychology, um, because he's totally not a liar. But he will dodge things very skillfully, but you can sort of see that he's dodging things. But they seem to think that he's being like, um, uh not deceitful, but um, arch. Dishon- oh, not Some- dishonest, but uh, yeah. It's, it's it's like um, like uh, that's why uh, when he writes to August Derleth, right? Lovecraft writes to August Derleth. He's very curt and quiet about like he doesn't he isn't expensive because he doesn't like him, right? Mm. When I get an email from somebody I li- I don't like, I don't. <laughs> go on and on, I keep it terse, and I answer their questions very courteously. Um, but they'll, like, he'll go out to a play or something, and they'll say something about it, and they're like, do you really think that that's what he was thinking? I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's what he was thinking, because he just said it. But then deep, deep, deep underneath, it's so cool, and I really appreciated you, Evan, talking about uh, Charles Dexter Ward, because um, it's it's seems like it's going to be a huge thing when I hit it. Um, I've read it, I guess, a long time ago, but I don't remember it, which is probably... Oh, it's wonderful. I was probably listening to an audiobook version of it, and I was reviewing it, so I wasn't... Um, I was focused on something else, which sometimes happens. But in any case, um, dude, his psychology is so fucking on the page in his stories. And he's working out these things, so when he answers a question about his or when he offers up his history of his father's death, right? Um, that they're they're wondering how much this is him processing. That's all his fiction mm. is is him processing, right? And it's like, oh my god, of course that's what it is. There's that hidden the thing that has to be buried, right? The truth. Oh my god, oh yeah, Evan, it's so there. That's you know it he. The guy wants to find out about his ancestor. He goes to a town. He finds out a terrible truth, right? <laughs> mm. Oh, my God. It's so him. Of course it is. And it's so much like 
I just think about my own psychology. I was like, yeah, of course I'm, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm interested in death. <laughs> my dad died when I was young too. He didn't die from, uh, from, uh, you know, syphilis he died from cancer. But you know, what really fucked me up was seeing him high on, um, on morphine. Uh, cause he's, you know, riddled with cancer needs lots and lots of morphine and he's he's spouting stuff like you hear in dreams it's so weird so what am i obsessed with i'm obsessed with death and dreams and i'm never taking any drugs ever <laughs> like wow that how'd that happen mm. right i never smoked a single cigarette in my entire life i thought my dad was died because of i i, I mean i learned later on that skin cancer is not really related <laughs> to smoking but at the time i thought you know you got to stop smoking dad you're gonna die and of course he did die and so it's like oh, of course i'm working out my own stuff in my own. everything affects you so mm. some of the stuff to me that they are not getting when they when they go wrong and they don't usually go wrong but when they sort of have questions that they can't answer it's really obvious to me because they didn't have their father die when they were young and they didn't have these questions and uh, that sort of thing. So, I, yeah. I, th I think also because they are doing it episodically, like uh, some of this stuff is so dense. It's super dense. To really get into it, you can't just do it in – it's like when you do a, you know, a show for a week, um, even if you're going into one of these letters or you're doing it splitting into two parts um, – you almost need to just uh, do so much research and really um, let it sink in. It's for yeah. them, they're doing it every week. It's like you almost no, don't have time before. The good news the is one. they actually have gone monthly now. And, oh, okay. and their new monthly one is very long. It's, uh, I think, almost two hours, which is amazing. Almost no podcasts are that long, um, mm. which I think is a mistake. Um, on the other hand... Um, you know, they're still them, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you're, a, if you're you, you bring you to the table and uh, they like Lovecraft. Absolutely. They're fascinated by him, but they, he doesn't seem to speak to like the, I, I came to him really late in life. I didn't find him through comics, or, you know, through, uh, through gaming or, I, or reading him when I was young. I was like, Oh, this guy's really interesting. I found him through Robert E. Howard. And uh, mm. I'm like, this guy's even more interesting than than Howard, because I'm not as suicidal as Howard is. <laughs> I haven't had uh, somebody in my life commit suicide. That I, I mean, I have, but they haven't been. You know, when I, I think childhood is really important. So if we if we asked Evan, you know, what traumatized you that made you the weirdo that you are, I think he would have some answers, and uh, they would they would be well, hopefully. Right, <laughs> your your trauma and your youth changed you, make you the way. You, like I I like boats because when I was a kid, my dad had a boat. Right. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I like um, the woods because <laughs> I like spent time on the woods. Right, <laughs> it's real sure. simple. I, I mean, mean, it's not I mean, complex. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think like it's definitely the case that you can't get away from uh, you know your early experiences, um, and you know, uh, and we all have with the same craft. That seems, yeah, 
Yeah, and we all have this. We all share one thing, which is childhood. Not everybody gets Mm. to be an adult, but you you don't start old and work your way up or work your way down, right? So we all have the same directional sort of thing to us. So if you can see somebody who's tapped into his own psychology to tell us truths about his own psychology, he's telling us truths about reality. Mm. And that's why his stuff is so fucking resonant, right? Mm. It's because it's not, it's it's philosophy, really. It's, he's exploring his own psychology through facts about reality. Mm. And And expressing things that you couldn't really put into, um, like, even if you were to write some massive treaties about his, you know, or Lovecraft did about his own ideas about the world, he would have never expressed it as well as he did through his stories. Yeah, not as powerfully, right? Because mm. you can say something, but it doesn't hit you in the same way as uh, truth does, right? And mm. that's why when I go back and read my dreams, I'm like, it's so fucking obvious what's going on with this guy. <laughs> right? Because I'm the one who wrote it, and yet I'm the one who's also sort of generating it. Um, and they're not like sort of the banal, bizarre dreams. I mean, sometimes it's related to things I was doing during the day, but it's generally related to the the concerns that I have and the way I act in response to things. So when confronted with weird reality, this is what Jesse does. Ergo, that's why the dream goes that way. And like bears. I I don't know why I'm obsessed with bears. Probably because when I was a kid, I accidentally kicked one. Yeah, that's exactly what it was, right? It's like real obvious. Um, mm. But, uh, oh, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, I think it's it's so rare to find uh, writers who are doing stuff like like Howard's obsessed. Uh, I don't understand why Howard's obsessed with the things he is, exactly like history and all that. But obviously he got some sort of tootling, tutelage as a youth that made him obsessed with understanding the the shift, like why people were moving into his neighborhood and why the neighborhood suddenly disappeared. Right. Why, why all the booming and busting went the way it did. And it's all, it has explanation that, I mean, that's the dime store psychology people say for why, you know, he's interested in that stuff. Um, but I don't, I haven't, I haven't read enough of, those letters to say, but it seems to be the case that that's, that's the easy explanation. But at 30 years old, you know, we don't know how much more he would have expressed Mm. about what's going on upstairs. Yeah. I think, uh, (laughs) if you, um, the, uh, dark Valley destiny, Mm. um, I bought it off the, uh, Kindle store for like $6, I think as an ebook. Um, and it's definitely worth, uh, reading if you're interested in his yeah. in Howard's early childhood because there's so much detail like they actually went and talked to people who knew him personally lived in the same town and knew his father um and so there's a and you know it's very rich in detail and mm-hmm. it kind of um yeah I'd hesitate to draw any definite lines between things and saying well this is why he's obsessed with these things but you can get a sense for his upbringing and his family life and uh, yeah there's something there for sure right i mean his his dad's a doctor his mom's dying and he can't afford to pay the medical bills what the fuck's going on there 
Mm. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, That's what I was saying. I was saying about uh, my friend Bill Holweg, right? Like, uh, I wish Will was still on here. I'll have to tell him another time. But my friend Bill Holweg is obsessed with Planet of the, or was obsessed with Planet of the Apes and Robert E. Howard and mm. The Prisoner and uh, Escape from New York. And what did he do? He did basically fan versions of all of these things um, and he put them out for free because he can't do it. He spent tons of time rounding up people from all over the world to help him create this vision that he had of uh, audio. And his stuff is way different than most audio dramas. Like it's full of music and there's no narration ever. Um, and he's really good at it, but the actors he's got are like all amateurs and they're doing it uh, from their home back in the mid, uh, you know, 1999, 2005, 2007, right? Period where <laughs> microphones are hard to get and he does mm. a really good job. And then um, almost all of his stuff is like this fan fiction sort of stuff or fan adaptations um, and really well done, like incredibly well done. He he, he buys the, when he did the bro, uh, the Broken Sea audio productions version of of Escape from New York. He bought the uh, Escape from New York novelization and he took scenes that are in there that were in the original script and put them back in and um, I pointed out something and he's like, I'm making an extra scene for that, uh, that the cover has, uh, or the poster has the head of <laughs> of the Statue of Liberty in the middle of Broadway and that's not in the film. <laughs> I said, mm. that pissed me off about the movie. I went, to, you know, those movies all lied, right, with the posters. They show things that are not in the movie <laughs> and I'm like, he says, I'm making a scene for that now. Um, so he made a series called um, Jake Sampson Monster Hunter and he plays one of the characters in it. Um, guess who else is in it? Um, it's like a, it's it's the only original series that he did that well it's not the only one it's the main one that i think about um and it's on 1930s monster hunters show which there's quite a few of now audio drama shows um but uh robert e howard is in the first episode um and then a few i don't know years go by he's doing more episodes and they do another serial and robert e howard's dead and they go visit they go to the funeral right and he he wrote all the dialogue, so I'm hearing his voice giving to other actors, and I hear him, his character react, but it's not his character, it's the character he's playing, but he's reacting through all of the characters, right, because he's writing it. And what did he do? He did exactly the same thing. He killed himself. Texan uh, killed himself, mm. at, and for a uh, non-good reason, basically his his healthcare system fucking sucks is why. And he was a burden to his family and he thought this would help them. And like, that's fucking terrible. Mm. And, and he was obsessed with like, he, he wanted to be a, he, he could have been so like, if he had not lived in Texas and not had to take care of his grandkids, um, he could have been, um, you know, a very great Hollywood screenwriter if they had, uh, not had these burdens on them, right? But he did so much uh, in a sh such a short period of time. It's amazing. And mm. I really li like, like, uh, the reason I'm friends with him is because I really liked his stuff and I was talking about it on my website. Um, not because, like, I wanted to make friends with a famous guy because he wasn't famous, right? Mm. But he so appreciated it. Um, 
that it was like to him it was validation like some mm. uh, some newspaper and there's so many people like that that are not getting you know what they deserve um because they're they're stuck in the situation that they are and that to me is the is the real tragedy that connects them right he he literally saw his his favorite writer kill himself in you know in re, in the history and then he follows the same path I'm like damn that's why psychology is is so attracted to it right it spoke mm. to him and uh he was he was in the navy too so I, I don't know what the fucking healthcare problem was there but maybe the va um um, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't know what, yeah. I don't know. It's just so fucked up. I mean, that's, that's the real American, uh, gun tragedy. Gun deaths is all the men killing These themselves. Two is, uh, it's not, yeah. yeah, they're just, sh- they're just shooting themselves. Mm. And, I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't that old. Mm. That'd be 50 at, at the most is my guess. So super yeah. sad story. Yeah, I'm going to check out, um, uh, what was it, um, was Broken Sea Audio. Yeah, I'll uh, send you a link. Yeah, yeah, sure. Cool, yeah. that sounds Check uh, out the, the first Monster Hunter serial, I'll send it to you. It's still all online. Um, oh, guess what? Uh, he did, yeah, he did a Conan adaptation of... Um, Queen of the Black Coast. Queen of the Black Coast, that's the, I think is one of his masterpieces. Um, cool. And um, and and he was going to do Red Nails, and Conan Properties International uh, sent him a cease and desist, and then um, and then they they entered negotiations, and they gave him a license, and then they took it away. They didn't, he, oh. you know. And then and then like I hadn't heard from him in a while, and then I I heard from uh, audio drama friend of mine that he had killed himself, and I was like, holy fuck, uh, yeah. And it was like he—he he was so into it, like that's what he would do with his grandkids. Is he like make an audio drama for them? Mm. And they—they're the stars of the show, right? He's just so full of passion for this weird project. Um, mm. I mean, I—I I think it's amazing, um, and I'm—I'm big, I'm big into it. But it's not like it's gonna—not a money maker. It's a passion project, right? Mm. And he was—he was really great at like taking other people's things and you know helping them to do like just super generous person it's like exactly how i'd like to be you know help people get their passion projects underway like so good that's awesome i mm. can't think to type here um but yeah broken sea auto productions uh, they're hosted out of australia they uh, when he died basically the site died um it hasn't yeah. but it hasn't gone offline um, almost nothing of it's offline still, but I keep thinking I should scrape all that and put it on a server somewhere in case it goes. But my, uh, he's not the only one who was involved, but basically it was him. That's why it died mm. after he died. Broken Sea. Yeah. I, I definitely scrape it if you uh, get the chance. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm on it right now, so yeah. um, I'm going to go... Download um, uh, all this stuff. Yeah, anyway, I'm gonna head off. Yep. Um, good night. Thank you very much. Right. Cool. Talk to you next week. Yep. Sounds good. Talk to you guys later. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. Bye, Evan. Bye.